Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to talk about the transformative experience. Um, the difference between, the bare bones difference between um, a derivative fan work and a transformative fan work is that a derivative work has no copyright or intellectual property rights attached to it. A transformative work does, which means that when you publish a transformative work in a fandom, which that's what transformative means. It means to take fandom characters, situations, plots, and do your own spin on it and make something new out of it. That's transformative. Um, the original creator can't come along and take your story, claim it, and sell it. That's why most authors who have a fan fiction following do not read fan fiction. Or at the very least, they don't read their own fan fiction or fan fiction of their own work because that's a road to getting sued. Or they're very careful not to admit it. Right, right. I would never admit it. If I if, if it was out there, I wouldn't admit it for nothing. Not a single thing. Um, so, transformative works. The reason that we... Beyond the fact that a transformative work uh, is your intellectual property, it does give you some legal protection against being accused of copyright theft or copyright violation or outright plagiarism. When you... Now, caveat, intellectual, it, it being your own intellectual property does not mean that you can profit off of it. That's a completely different thing. Right. Just it just means no one else can profit on it. And you can, if someone takes it and you can, and you can prove that it's yours, you can get it removed from wherever it's been put. You know, that, that kind of thing. Because um, you don't want anybody else making money off your fan fiction either. Because that's, that's a road to court that I, I wouldn't want to be on either. <laughs> no. Like that, I wrote it, but I'm not the one who made money off of it. But I'm still in court. That sucks. Mm -hmm. And I had to pay for a lawyer. And I'm going to get nothing out of this. Yeah, you might yeah. get subpoenaed. You might get subpoenaed to testify. It's just all kinds of ugly things. So, but transformative works. A transformative work is your goal as a writer. When you're sitting down to, to work, you want to create a story. You want to tell a story in your own way. Tell a story that no one else has told. Now, we all use the same tropes, the same plots, because there aren't that many plots. Um, <laughs> like seven or nine, depending on your point of view. Man versus nature, man versus machine, man versus himself, etc., etc., etc. We can look that up if you want. We, we, we did a whole podcast on it once. Um... You can see these things play over and over and over and over again if you look deep enough. Most um, romance movies that came out in the 90s are either Beauty and the Beast or Cinderella in some fashion or another. And some of them don't even pretend they're not. But it isn't like the, the base premise can be have been done a thousand times. It's what you do with it, how you employ your author voice, and the work that you do in that space that makes it yours, that makes it, trans that makes it transformative. And if, as a reader, if you think about the works that you've read in fandom that inspire and entertain you the most, they're going to be transformative. They're not going to be derivative or a regurgitation of canon in an abbreviated format. Now, I know you can go over to fanfiction.net and find 10,000 10, different versions of the Philosopher's Stone. Um, told ba basically plot point for plot point. With very little variation, no matter what they say. Oh, Harry grew up with Sirius, but everything happens the same exact way in the book, in the first book. 
No. So whenever you encounter works like that in fandom, they are derivative, not transformative. So as a reader, you're going to be drawn heavily to things that are new and exciting. You're going to be drawn to the transformative experience. As a writer, that is your goal. That, that's what I seek every time I sit down. I don't want to tell somebody else's story. I want to tell my own. And even if we're using the same premise, um, the same um, the, you know, thematic tropes, whatever, it doesn't matter. None of that matters. What matters is, is the story that you are telling and how you tell it. And that's where transformation begins. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. The, the transformative experience. Some people devalue fan fiction without having a single bit of knowledge about fan fiction. And I know, you, I know you've encountered them as a reader, as a writer. And, I mean, one of the most appalling things I ever saw, actually, was... Some, I, don't want to, I don't want to say his name, but some TV host showing fan art to an actor. To, I don't know if he was trying to embarrass the actor or whatever, but they shamed the artist. It was awful. I haven't yeah. watched that particular show since, as a matter of fact. There's a couple of um, hosts that do this um, late night. Especially, it's really popular with late night hosts to bring up fan fiction or fan art. But there's one um, in particular that, that I stopped watching over this entirely because he does it so often. Um, and it's ugly. Yeah. And it's it's obviously... never done like in a way that you would think that they're just having a little bit of fun. It's always ugly. It's always done with the maximum intent to make the actor as as uncomfortable as possible and to put fan art in as negative a light as possible. And it's just gross. Um, so society will look at our community and see something that can be made fun of. Yeah, yeah, Jeep. <laughs> yeah, we're on the same page, baby. Same page. Um, it's But you have to kick that out because this is about us as a community um it's about finding our um our joy in in fandom and finding what makes us happy and doing it now we are four days out from the first post date for the big moxie quarter one super excited um i have my art ready i do not <laughs> i may be hitting it my buddy kira <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, no, you do not you need, need art. art. You don't need art, but I post on my own website, so you know I always so she, have better art, art for my for my thing for my featured image. But if you're on um, if you're on your own website or on Ao3, no, you don't need your, you don't need art. It's just I I always make art. It's it's part of my thing. Um, so I have art. My my um, my slider my slider would be naked without art. It, it, it's just yeah. going to be a thing. Yeah, I don't, um, don't want to have a naked slider either. Naked. Y'all know the difference between naked and naked? Naked means you don't have any clothes on. Naked means you don't have any clothes on and you're up to something. Right? <laughs> That's definitely what naked is about. <laughs> he was naked! <laughs> and that spelled N-E-K-K-I-D. That's right. Naked. Naked. <laughs> naked, with, naked with intent. Thank you, AJ. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I was telling them I was watching Young Wallander. You guys can honestly expect fanfic from this, okay? Because I'm really enamored. Um, and he meets this this young um, 
hot-headed woman who who's who they're at a political protest and she's protesting and he's trying to keep the people who are demonstrating and the protesters separate he's a cop and she's calling him a fascist and shit and she's just like making his life she just she's insulting him so much and you can just see on his face he's just thinking she's so pretty <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't even care. So later on, later on, a couple episodes later, he gets to bang her on the couch. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> get some. <laughs> She's feisty, though. I, I really like Mona. I like, I like her a lot. Anyway, Young Wallander. It's on Netflix. I highly recommend it. I am. I'm a, I binge watched almost the entire first season today. I have one episode left for season one, and then I get season two, which is just you know just landed, which is why it was on the front page of Netflix. So I'm looking forward to see series two as well, and then I'm going to be really sad because I won't have anything else to watch for a whole year. That is one of the hard things about Netflix and um, um, other companies that drop, like Amazon. I think Amazon also dropped. No. Yeah, Amazon drops tends to drop its whole series at once. Where it does drop the whole series at once is that you know you can binge it in a weekend, and then you're like, "But what now?" <laughs> I prefer to binge. So if something drops over a period of weeks, I won't watch it till it's complete. Yeah, but um, I did. Hear I from, want to uh, watch Reacher twice, but I have I I need somebody who's watched it that I trust to tell me if there's any profound violence in it. Like uh, physical violence, or like I don't mean just it's like a fight. I mean like I don't mean just a fight. Okay, I'm not talking about. I'm talking about psychotic violence or violence against women. I will watch it next. So I'll let you know. But um, my mom just watched it, and um, she's usually pretty sensitive to that kind of thing. And she said it was great, which I was not expecting. Okay. So she she, she said you got to watch Reacher. It's really good. And I was like, well, that came out of the blue. Um. So, well, I mean, I expect Jack Reacher to be <laughs> a level of violence, but is it like beat somebody to death by stomping them in the face violent? Because I can't handle that. <laughs> That's not usually Reacher's vibe, but I will, um, I will, uh, <laughs> I mean, because, he's well, no, here's he... the thing, like I watched, um, I can watch, um, I had no problems with the violence in Lord of the Rings. You know, the sword stuff and the blood and the guts. And I play action video games. I play Mass Effect, Halo. None of that really bothers me. But I could not get through the first episode of Daredevil. Because it was, like, so intense. Hmm. I mean, I find... my my I think it's sort of like my bar for violence is um, John Wick. But that's almost... I mean, I can handle John Wick. I've watched John Wick. I can handle The Matrix. Um, that level of violence, but Daredevil was like. Well, Matrix is Matrix is basically kung fu. I mean, I, I, right? When it comes, yeah. This is weird. That's when it comes to martial art, when it comes to martial arts type violence, it doesn't doesn't ever hit me the same. <laughs> Pun. Um. <laughs> Daredevil is brutal. Yeah, I mean, it is just it's. Um, you could you could hear bones breaking in that scene where he was fighting. I mean, there were things. Yeah, the, the first the first um. John Wick movie. I, I weirdly, even though it's really violent, I didn't have a, much of a problem with it. But I think it was the second movie where I was like, was the second movie or the third movie? No, it was the, I it watched was, the it first was, it, John Wick movie, but I haven't watched the other two. It was the third one where I was like, there were there were some things. That, it was like they kept amping up the violence, and there were some things that happened in the third one that like I was like cringing. Mm, okay. Um, out of my chair. 
Um, I can handle action movies for the most part, but like Daredevil was really brutal, and it was I, I just couldn't handle it. I just couldn't. Yeah, I mean, sometimes these things are also like where your head is at the time, and you don't recognize sometimes yeah. that your head is not in the right space for something. Like I remember this is gonna, this is a ridiculous example contextually, but. My sister and I had told my mother she really needed to go see this one movie. She really needed to go see it. She really needed to go see it. We like really talking this movie up. I'm not telling you what the movies are because y'all are going to laugh when I tell you what it was at the end. We told her you need to see it. It's one of my favorite movies we've seen this year. And actually, I think it wound up being my favorite movie of the year it was released. My mother finally goes to see it. She couldn't stand it. And my sister and I were just flummoxed. Like, how could she not like this movie? And, like, it was so bizarre. She just really didn't like it. Find out later... My mom's got a lot of physical issues. She's old. She's getting older. She's got a lot of physical issues. She was in this little community theater that these really hard chairs. And she was in pain before she ever got there. She was miserable the whole time. So when I find this out, when it's on, comes out on, like, it's on, like, you know, streaming or whatever. And I said, you know, we, we watch it again. And she loved it. I'm like, you said you hated this movie. She goes, I don't know. I just, I remember not being able, not liking it. And I was like, what was going on with you at the time? We figured out that she was physically in pain through the whole thing, and she just wasn't appreciating it. By the way, the movie was Big Hero 6. So, <laughs> when my mother said she couldn't stand it, you could understand how utterly bemused I was by her proclamation that she didn't like this movie. Speaking of so I movies, like, I was kind of fiddling with a scene in my entry for the Big Moxie Quarter 2 story, and... Um, Buck was asking Christopher what his favorite movies were, and he was really hoping that Frozen wouldn't be on the list because his niece watches it all the damn time. But Frozen wasn't on the list, but Coco was. And Eddie walks into the kitchen and says, if I have to watch Coco one more epic time. Because <laughs> he's four, right? Christopher's four. And if you've ever a four-year-old, they'll watch the same three or four movies fucking repeatedly. It's like that. It's like that mama with the "Let It Go." Who in this? Remember, and we all remember that weather story. That weather series. Don't kill Elsa. Where, yeah, <laughs> don't kill Elsa. And her daughter singing in the background. She goes like, "It's day four. No school." Uh, <laughs> and she's got her. You could tell it's cold in her house. She's got a little hat on. <laughs> Just frozen. Nothing but frozen. Let it go, Olaf. What's the other one's name? The little girl goes, Anna! Anna! <laughs> Don't kill Elsa! <laughs> that little girl was upset. But my Padawan was addicted to Jurassic Park. The first one. He's four. And he's watching Jurassic Park. Now how he got to watch this the first time, no one knows. But after it was done, nothing else could be done. Because if he didn't get to watch it at least once a damn day... Who let that kid watch those dinosaurs? Shit got real. I, you know, there, there is, there is honestly too much of Jeff Goldblum. There is a moment when you get too much, even if he is lounging around like a sex symbol while, while the woman's doing all the work. Eventually, it, it, it isn't enough. It just isn't enough. Anyways, transformative works. Well, but Wallander, I, I am really enamored with the character of Wallander. I think I'll probably write some fan fiction about him. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> I'll have to check it out. Um, I also watched Project Adam today. It was really um, cute, fun, bittersweet. When I read that scene about um, his niece reading, watching Elsa, watching Frozen all the time, and he hoped Christopher wasn't Elsa, it wasn't Frozen, 
And then you had the thought he wished his niece would just let it go. I wasn't, I wasn't certain if that was a deliberate pun or not because it was so oh, no, subtle. It was. The way you, it was? Okay. <laughs> it was so subtle the way you slipped it in there. I was like, is that deliberate or no? See, I, I could be slick. <laughs> you were. It was slick. I was like, was that, is that, is that deliberate? <laughs> it fit. In every way possible. <laughs> well, I mean, anytime anybody talks about, there needs to be a let it go joke. Anytime anybody talks about Frozen. Because, you know, <laughs> for fuck's sake. <laughs> that song Planet. was everywhere for 10 years. There was a... um million years. <laughs> there was a... Uh, I actually think the song Let It Go is actually really well done. And it's it's actually, yeah. I think, a little bit more mature than even yeah, you would expect. From a... a Disney theme, even even for the the main theme song, but I actually think that the 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 a character, a character, the contestant that I was favoring to win on The Voice one year, I think she tanked her chances by in her finale performing performance choosing to sing "Let It Go." Oh, because that was um, um that's an audience vote. Yeah, because she sang yeah. it. She sang it for the kids. She's a nanny, I think. Um, and she sang it for the kids that she. Uh, as a tribute to the kids that she had worked with. And um, uh, I think it ruined her chances of winning singing Let It Go. Because, I mean, I think adults don't gravitate, the, and, uh, you know. And the, and the adults were the ones voting. Yeah. Yeah. And also, she probably triggered some of them. <laughs> right? Like, They're oh like, my oh, God. my God. What are you? Was, and, you? She, she was by far my favorite contestant the whole season. I really wanted her to win. And when I saw she was going to sing Let It Go, I was like, and you could tell Adam Levine was not pleased with her choice, but it was her choice. Um, but actually when I saw her, I'm like, oh, she did a great performance of it. Her performance was beautiful, but that's not even the point. It's like, I think once people heard Let It Go, they just tuned it out. And you could see like, his expression that he kind of, he was like putting on a good face for it, but I could like, it looked, his expression looked a little plastic. I could tell he wasn't thrilled. Thrilled. Yeah. Uh, but she was my favorite contestant. And then she's saying that as soon as she started singing, I was like, oh, she just ruined her, her chances of winning. But if I had to have a kid on a Disney sing-along, I would hope they'd be on a Disney sing-along kick for... Moana, because I think it has the better, more <laughs> tolerable songs on repeat. Oh, no, the first Tarzan maybe has a cute soundtrack, too. No, not in Lion Canto, King. no. Lion King? Not, absolutely not Lion King. <laughs> if you get into Lion King, there's Hakuna Matata, and I can't, I can't, I can't. <laughs> the Bruno thing, that's why it can't be in Canto, no. We don't got to talk about Bruno. No, 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 no. <laughs> I've not seen Encanto, um, so I keep meaning to go watch it, but I just haven't. Um, but um, anything, anything fanish segues well into um, transformative. Uh, the the parent company or the parent organization, because it's all it's not really a company; it's a it's an organization for, for Ao3 is the organization for transformative work, and they put all lot of their their money and their. Uh, you know, their fundraising, a lot of their efforts behind supporting the fair use parts of copyright law that apply to transformative works. Now, AO3 has removed some works from AO3. It's the, this vague line for it's not transformative enough. Um, and But honestly, when you look at those fixes that were removed, it is abundantly clear that they're not transformative. It is. But also, like but they have to cross that line. It is like, wow! Did you just copy and paste from the ebook into into your workout and change some of the names? 
Now, sometimes, but sometimes that that's outright plagiarism. But yeah, um, sometimes it's not plagiarism. It's but it is so close to the original in terms of beat by beat storytelling. Um, like in one case, it was a case of like they retold like beat for beat the whole story, but with different characters. Um, and AO3 eventually removed it. Now, to some degree, I think that these stories have to gain a level of popularity. And then somebody has to complain about it and say, in what way is this transformative? And the thing is, the problem is, is then it gets into AO3's abuse committee has to then look at it and review it and go, is this actually transformative? And to some the degree, there's story a little... that to me mo the most was not transformative. I was reading it. Because I had read the original, and I'd also watched the movie, and I'd also listened to the audiobook of that particular work. Um, and in no single way was that particular fan work, if you can call it that, transformative. Yeah. Um, it was... It could have been. It, it could it very easily have been. I mean, at the core of a transformative work is the question, what if? And um, what if this character was put in these circumstances instead what if harry potter uh was adopted when he was little what if a teacher had reported harry potter's abuse what if what if what if what if what if and the thing is if the answer to that question leads to no substantive difference over canon then i don't think the work is transformative in any way all you've achieved it's is canon. also it's also frustrating when you see somebody take a work and put another character into it and then tell the same story. Um, because here's the thing. Let's take... I'm trying to think of a... If you put a character like Rodney McKay somewhere where he's on his own and he has to do his own thing and he has to survive on his own, he's not going to have the same responses as, say, John Shepard would have or Eddie Diaz would have or Buck would have or... Um, Evan Lauren would have. Uh, just, I mean, if you think about any character, like if you, here, okay, if MacGyver and Jack O'Neill got stuck on different planets and had to get back to Earth, who do you think would get back first? Provided they what? both know about the Stargate. If they both about the Stargate, uh, it depends. Well, there's a lot of big, it, a lot of it depends because if there's hostile engagement, probably Jack. If there's not hostile engagement, right. it's just a sheer survival circumstances, probably MacGyver. Probably. Um, are they being held hostage? If they're being held hostage, I would say MacGyver has a better chance of getting out of a hostage situation than Jack does. Way better chance. Now, they have the best chance of surviving together despite their look-alike tendencies. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, is this is a character, these are two characters played by the same actor, right? One is a pacifist, and in a war zone, he's not going to make it. Right, which is why if there's hostile engagement, he's not getting out. Um, right. If there's, if there's, if there, but if he, if it's just survival by ingenuity, he's gonna definitely outlast Jack. So, um, but as we're moving into this whole thing with writing fusions, it's important to know that if you're doing a fusion, like a like a true to form as it originally was conceived fusion, and you're putting a character, say, like Jack O'Neill, in the role of Picard on Next Generation. It's important to know that in no single way would Jack O'Neill make the same decisions and choices that Jean-Luc Picard would make. So even if you put them in the same exact circumstances at the beginning, 
there would be an immediate shift in perspective because they are not the same character. They wouldn't make the same decisions. They wouldn't have the same information. Um, it, if Jack O'Neill was in Starfleet, his career path, if he got to captain, his career path would have been, he would have gotten to captain, would have been vastly different than Picard's. And let's be honest, Jack, Jack O'Neill's a brawler. So he's not going to be on, number one, he isn't going to be on the flagship. If he's captain of a ship, it's going to be a fighter. He's going to be the one you call in when you got a problem. Not someone you right. call in when you want them to sit down and have a peace talk. Right. It's not going to be on the, 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 the fleet's preeminent science and exploration vessel. No, he's going to have like a, uh, basically a Starfleet version of a destroyer. They're saying Defiant class. Yeah. He's not going to... So, when you think about putting these characters in situations like that, you need to think about their characterization and keep it in mind. And that's how you keep it transformative. Because if you took the plot of First Contact, Star Trek First Contact, which is um, probably one of the best Next Generation movies, in, in my opinion, um, and you put the characters of SG-1 in the role... Uh, in the roles of the characters of Next Generation. Just wholesale. Put them just on... Well, number one, it does, that doesn't make any sense because they wouldn't be on the Enterprise. But let's, let's say they are. They're not going to make the same decisions and choices that the crew, the original crew, would have made. And you have to account for that. And that's where transformative work comes into play. Otherwise, you're just retelling the movie with different names. And that's so what happens in seen... those circumstances. All right, and I've seen actually those kinds of things get removed from AO3 is where you just change the names but kept everything the same. Even if even if you've rewritten the words, um, AO3 can go, this isn't transformative, and it's bordering on plagiarism. And there is a, there is a type of plagiarism that is where you've basically, um, I can't even remember what it's called, because typically plagiarism is um, a word-for-word copy. But there is a concept in there where you've basically stolen the structure and all the structure and ideas from an entire work. And, like, you've got beat for beat the same action, the same exact number of characters filling the exact same roles. Everything is mirrored. It's just basically you've rephrased a work. And when you just rephrase a work or paraphrase a work, that's, there's some provision. And I would call that plagiarism as well. But it's certainly not transformative. It's derivative at best and it is outright copyright theft in, in my personal opinion um it certainly is a copyright violation and that's been proven in court <laughs> people have gotten in trouble for that um oh great so i found an article on the seven types of plagiarism it's uh i don't want to get like all bogged down in this in this particular thing but when you're when you're moving around in fandom as a writer i personally i try I try to create a circumstance where I am telling a story that entertains me that I've not seen before. Even if I'm if I'm using the same tropes and um, the same basic premise that is, that is, that is old as time. Because there aren't that many. Um, there are seven plots and a billion ways to tell them. Um, I don't need somebody else's version of that plot. I need my own. Yeah. And even if you're working with tropes that are common to your fandom, like Buck and Chris and the tsunami, or averting the, some some way of averting, you know, your trope is, you know, something else happens and prevents the lawsuit from occurring, or whatever. You know, there are common tropes in your fandom that you might work with, but your idea is, well, what if you do it your way? 
your way, not paraphrase somebody else. And I think one of the things that gets in the way of people being truly transformative is, uh, well, there's a couple things. Is one, they have a hard time with understanding how things ripple. Um, because the thing is, even a little, sometimes a microscopic change, the most, the, the tiniest changes can have tsunami-like ripples in a cannon. At other times, you can actually have a fairly large change that results in fairly small ripples, depending upon the type of change and the characters involved. And it could make logical sense either way. Um, an example of a very small change that could have really big impact is you get uh, a better established, a, a, a solid supportive parental figure in Buck's life before he became a firefighter. And that is a very small thing, an outside relationship that could have huge consequences to him personally and dramatically then affect events in canon because Buck has a significant impact on canon events. Now, he doesn't have an impact on all canon events because Buck is not actually the center of the universe, no matter what we might like to think. <gasps> I know! <laughs> oh my god. Well, clearly it's Christopher. What? Right. Christopher is the center <laughs> of the universe. Um... But you're right, though. I mean, if you, if, say, Buck comes to L.A. and he finds out that Philip Buckley isn't his father. We've we've actually done a whole podcast on this, giving him a new daddy. Um, or, you know, what if Philip Buckley just decides to man up and be a dad and tries to connect with his son? Either way, Buck comes into the 118 with a solid foundation on which he's standing he's not starved for affection he might you know he's he's young and he's gorgeous he's still going to be getting laid i phantom stop if i was if i was in my 20s and single and looked like that getting laid would be my hobby and i would take it seriously like a job <laughs> right i was in my 20s and i didn't look like that and i still took getting laid as my hobby yeah true my true because in my mid-20s when i was single um yeah, it, it it was definitely like my, my my fucking was my main source of entertainment. Okay, I'm just gonna be put it out there. I'll be perfectly honest. And I wasn't six foot two and built like a Greek god. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, five foot three and all tits and ass, which 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 worked out great for me. <laughs> it's a job I took very seriously. But see, it's like. I just, I, I hate that whole Buck lives like a monk after he, you know, gets cured of his man whoring by Abby. It just, it just, oh, I want to stab that until it dies. I just, I hate it. I hate that trope. Um, but. And like if, if Buck has sex. In his and, private, what, what him? and there's that whole thing in fandom, like if Buck has sex with anybody outside of a relationship, you'll hear, oh, is this the return of Buck 1.0? I'm like, that is basically backhanded slut shaming. I can't stand it. I can't. Oh. I can't stand it. And honestly, if he had a foundation outside of the fire station and he's, you know, not making, I mean, he's had a positive influence, he probably isn't going to make the same mistakes that he made the first time that when we see him in canon. He probably isn't going to steal a fire truck because he doesn't have to go home and tell his dad he got fired for stealing a fire truck so he could get laid. <laughs> he doesn't have anybody he's accountable to but himself. Right. That some of those events would just never happen. And it seems like a small thing, a parental figure. But that is huge in some characters. Characters who don't ever have that 
characters like Buck or like Harry Potter. A parental figure at the right time in their life is massive ripple in their life. And so to say that things occur the same is not thinking things through at all. Um, and Buck would never have been so desperate for Bobby's approval or he might be he might want his approval as his captain, but he was never going to be as desperate for his approval um, and attention as he was in canon as sort of a father figure. Um, what that bothers me about the fire truck thing is that the station had to be offline, which the question is is why did how did he get out of the firehouse with the truck with no one noticing? Well, he, he might have. have. He might have legitimately been sent to gas it up. Right, and then took a pit stop. <laughs> right. I mean, he had to have taken it out legitimately because you can't just steal a fire truck. Right, right. Um, although I did write it in one of my stories that it wasn't the fire truck, that it was an engine and that there were two of them and that it was in maintenance and that's why he had it out of the house. Because I was like, I don't... The the, the situation we get in the show is, is not explained fully to me. To a, in a way that I felt comfortable with it was weird they didn't give us enough information because honestly if he had stole the fire truck the ladder truck because they only got one while they're online while they're supposed to be available for emergencies he should not have only been fired he should have been arrested yeah so it just it, there's there's some stuff that doesn't make sense um but um but yeah, I mean, he could have made a quick pit stop to get laid on his way back from getting the truck gassed. And, um, although it's also, I will point out that we didn't know at that time that Buck was still a probie. We don't find that out till later. But technically, Buck is still a probie at that time. It's a little weird that they send the probie out with the truck alone because there's no, I mean, I guess he could have a commercial driver's license coming in. But it's still a little weird. Well, yo. Yeah, he, yo he has to have said, a commercial driver's license he, um, he absolutely has everybody a who drives the apparatus in the house has to have one at, at the very least yeah so he's I mean, i'm just thinking he could have come in with a commercial driver's license which explains why he drives sometimes but i just think it's a little weird that they send their six month on the job firefighter who shows an impulse control problem out alone with their apparatus but whatever yeah it's iffy we won't, but it is like the idea that they're giving him all the shit jobs i guess um, okay, but so when it comes to, when it comes to the size of the ripples, that should have a huge ripple, but you will see people writing it as not having much, something like that's not having much of a ripple. Same thing with Harry Potter. Harry Potter has been raised by somebody else. Um, he's raised with a good childhood and then still comes into the wizarding world and, and the same events play out where he doesn't, exp he still, because a lot of the way that it makes sense that the events of the first book play out is Harry's fundamental distrust of adults. Well, if Harry doesn't have the same fundamental distrust of adults, why would those events play out the same? And yet people will write it exactly that way. Um, something that should have an astronomical impact, but might not, um, depending upon where you put it, so reverse, reverse ripple here. You throw a big boulder in and you think it's going to have huge ripples and then it might not as much, is you delay Eddie Diaz's arrival significantly. You put somebody else in that spot. A lot of the events that happened in season two had nothing to do with Eddie's, Eddie being there. And Eddie and Except Buck's friendship was not instrumental in Buck's development at that point. Now I'd say Eddie... Eddie and Buck's friendship was instrumental in Buck's development in season three, 
but it wasn't there, as critical. There, there is one event you need to kind of wrap your head around if Eddie Diaz doesn't arrive the very day that he does in canon. And that the is bomb. 118 is going to be called to a scene where a dude's got a live grenade in his leg. Right. That, that is a big thing. So that and Eddie's but the once, only one that no, noticed that it was live. Right. So once you deal with that grenade, and honestly, considering how things had gone, that would probably have gone off at the hospital. Yeah. It probably it would might have actually been. gone off when they were taking him out of the ambulance. Yeah, it's possible. So other than that one particular event, I, I'd have to go through all the events in season two, but Eddie's ripples in season two were kind of small for bringing in a new main character. Not, I don't mean that in a negative way, but there are other characters they could have put in that slot that Eddie's ripples got bigger as time went on. Um, once he and Buck got to be really good friends, um, you know, once they started introducing more plot lines for him. But other than that, um, no, I don't think a pothole would have done it because they were saying that the, it had to turn a certain amount. And he had no idea how many times it had already turned. And that it, was the problem. That the, the sensor requires a certain number of twists before it would. That was what they said in canon. Um, so if it was a ma- if, if it was a matter of just bouncing around, um, that doesn't seem like it would satisfy the. But the other side of it is is that you don't have any idea how stable this grenade actually is, or how stable True. the sensor is. Um, but because the guy still... who had it thought it was a uh, not a real one. But it still was stable through them transporting it, him, and then parking in a parking lot evacuating the parking lot, talking to the bomb squad, finding out that they were going to have to call in a specialist from the military base. That specialist couldn't be there. So they sat there for some amount of time before Eddie said, our patient can't wait. I will attempt to remove it. it he, that guy would have gotten to the hospital from a, just from a sheer time perspective. I mean, you could argue that a pothole could have taken it out. It doesn't, to me, that doesn't make a lot of sense considering the amount of jouncing it had already been through. Um, but anyway, from a time perspective, he had, um, it had plenty of time for transport. Yeah, it was Vietnam era. <laughs> that makes it even worse. I mean, honestly, you know, it's 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 iffy that you know the, the dude was lucky it didn't go off in his leg when he did it at the moment, considering Absolutely. how old it was. But the um, the point is, in canon, that thing was in his leg, and in that he was in the back of that ambulance long enough for them to have achieved transport and left the patient before anybody figured out that it was a live round. And it could be that it went off because it was pulled out, that the leg was stabilizing it, as awful as that is, and that by by taking it out of the body, it exposed it to more movement. Than the, than the sensor could handle, and that's why it went off after they all left the ambulance because the sensor wasn't stable, and it was just sitting there in that ordnance box. But it is a ripple that you need to account for. I wouldn't make it a dud. I don't know what I would do with it. Well, you could have the doctor recognize it. There's an there's an episode of Code Black which it goes way back. It was Code Black was I think off the air before nine one one aired. But there's an mm-hmm. episode of Code Black where the police wind up under fire from um, explosive ordnance, and um, someone comes in with a live round in their leg, and they think it's a, a shell. They think it's a, a, an intact bullet, and they have a doctor who, who's a, also a, um, a army colonel, and he looks at the shape and size of the of the 
round in this guy's leg. I said, that is not, that is an unexploded explosive round. And, um, it's the doctor, the doctor who, the third, the doctor who winds up taking it out, who realizes what it is. Um, now in that episode of Code Black, um, the hospital administrator says, you cannot remove that thing in this hospital. (laughs) No. (laughs) And there was like nobody to do it, but this guy was going to die if that thing was left in his leg because, you know, so they, uh, they basically put bomb blankets and stuff around an evacuated atrium. And he, in the hospital, the, the administrator said, no, you're not authorized to do it. And the guy says, I'm actually on loan to you from the army. I don't work for you. I can do whatever I want. But also the hospital could get sued for transporting him if it went off. Right. Which is, you know, it, it, it all becomes a big issue, but the administrator says you can't do anything. Um, but the guys, well, we can't just leave it in there. Um, so, Anyway, so there are ways you can handle the issue, but I mean, I'd have to go through all the stuff in season two, but it is potential sometimes. There's this weird thing that sometimes you think adding a character or removing a character should have a really big impact, and then you find that it has less impact than you think when you start thinking through the ramifications. And then you might stumble on one or two things that are um, a really big deal. And then, but it also depends upon your- potential to be a big deal, but you can lampshade them. Right, you can get through them. Uh, and we can, we can, I mean, I don't want to rat hole on one particular thing when it's not yeah. really the point. But see, once you start getting further along, it becomes a bigger deal that Eddie wasn't there. Because um, Eddie and Buck have to be close enough by the time Eddie is comfortable dropping off his child at the beginning of season three for Buck and Christopher to be in that tsunami together. Because there's no reason for Buck to be down on the pier. Now, you could have Buck be down on the pier for other reasons, but then it starts to feel kind of contrived. So when you have canon events happening without any of the canon impetus for them happening, you have to be careful about it starting to feel contrived or that you're just trying to make canon events occur for no reason. I read a little fic on AO3, and I'm not going to be able to give you the name, and I'm sorry in advance, where Buck is on the pier, and he's just recently left the Navy. Um, and Christopher is there with his class, with some, some kind of like situ- class situation. And there's a bunch of kids with him. Um, and he gets separated from them, and Buck is talking to him, trying to get his information, and he's showing him ID, you know, to prove, you know, just show, this is who I am, you know, I'm stranger danger, all that stuff. And the tsunami comes, and he snatches Christopher up, and he runs. And he keeps Christopher safe on the fire truck, and they, and and Buck gets knocked off the truck and disappears. So, Christopher gets saved, and he's with the other people that Buck saved on the fire truck, um, but they can't find him. And all Christopher remembers is that his name was Evan. Um, and so Buck starts at the 118 because he's gone through the fire academy. And him and Eddie are getting along really great. And somebody, Carla maybe, brings Christopher to the station. And Christopher is reunited with his Evan, who saved his life during the tsunami. Aww. And it was really sweet. <laughs> he's so happy. He's so happy he got his Evan back. And they were like, why is he calling you Evan? He's like, well, that's my first name. But, you know, um, I showed him my ID, you know, so I couldn't just say I was Buck because he, you know. I wanted him to know for certain who I was. Uh, but it was just a really cute little fic. It, it wasn't very long at all. Under 10K, I would say. But it was very sweet. Um, and yeah, it's contrived that Eddie, that Buck was on the pier that day and just in the right place to save Christopher. But still, it's adorable. <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the things you can say is that 
I would just put it in my author notes. Yes, it's contrived that Buck and Christopher somehow managed to be on the pier together for other reasons at the same time. But just, just go with, you know, once we get past that contrivance, just go with me on it. Because um, sometimes well, you do Star, that. Well, Star, I'm going to throw down over 50K of uh, 911 fic in just four days. <laughs> well, I think she means that most of the fandom is under. Oh, yeah, they are. The, the, the fandom is a really, it's all short, though. <laughs> so why is it so short? <coughs> And honestly, I've had some of my most disappointing moments with longer than 911 fix. So, um, yeah, well, I won't get into that. But I mean, when I talk about, sometimes people keep trying to make canon events happen without the canon's impetus for that event to occur, which I don't understand why you would do that. Um, there are some things that are going to occur that are external to canon, that are external forces, not external to the camp. They're external forces that have nothing to do with your characters, right? Like the blackout that happened in 911 early in season five. That's that was caused by forces that have nothing to do with any of the canon characters. So you you're not going to stop the blackout from happening, unless you want to write that the you know, the hacker collective that was responsible for it um, somehow got caught and dismantled before they before they went after. It the city of Los Angeles. Um, some some fan fiction writers, um, especially new ones, new writers in fandom who get really enamored with a character or with a show and they fall into fandom and they don't know what they're doing with it and they get really excited and, oh, I want to write this and they start writing. Um, because they are new to the whole thing, sometimes there is this fear of ignoring canon events or changing canon events because that's all they know. They don't have the experience as a writer to step outside that box they've been given. And you see that very commonly with young writers or new writers, I should say, just, just new writers in general, where, okay, apparently it's called, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to say their pen name. Um, it's, it's Saving the Diaz is by Slitherclaw Idiot. All one word. I think you can say Slitherclaw Idiot just fine. Um, I was worried that it would come out of my mouth because sometimes stuff like that doesn't just come out of my It just like, just tumbles right over my tongue. Um, anyways, he saves Christopher first and then he saves Eddie later. It's just a, it's just a really cute fic. It's, um, I don't think I've read this one. Um, which is nice. I, I, there's, it's, for a while there, I would say that most fic I had read, or at least attempted to read, but there's lately more and more there's more stuff I've discovered I haven't read. But I do think writers, especially in young fandoms or young writers to fandoms, um, young being relative to their when it, their their number of years writing, not their literal age, and also young in terms of their years in fandom. Because sometimes this is also an exposure to fandom. Like someone who has been writing for six months, which I would call them a young writer, but who is um, mature in fandom, who's been in fandom for 20 years, is not going to have the same attachment to making canon happen. Um, no, because they've had a lot of exposure to fan fiction and truly right. transformative works. Right. So, like, there is a... There's a... There's a one of the things that happens in early season five, I think the first episode, is that um, Eddie collapses when he is out having a um, fitting for a suit. And um, 
he collapses. He's having a heart attack, but he's having a panic attack is what he's having. And he, um, the, the, the actual root of this is actually probably goes back to the sniper is probably what it goes back to because they kind of are doing this long game on Eddie's mental health issues. But the short term impetus for it was that he and Anna and Christopher looked too much like a family and he, he saw their relationship advancing faster than he was prepared to deal with. And it was this ready-made, he called it this ready-made family and he wasn't prepared to deal with it. And it freaked him out and he had a panic attack. I've seen stories that have Eddie and Anna breaking up shortly after the sniper thing, but they still have the panic attack occurring in the same place and then affecting... And the reason is because they want to write the hospital scene the same way. And there's a scene at the hospital where a doctor basically violates Eddie's right to patient confidentiality and says in front of Eddie's co-workers, I didn't think we'd see you back here so soon. And it's the doctor who had treated him for his supposed heart attack and reveals Eddie's information, his medical information in front of his co-workers. So the person wanted to write that whole scene at the hospital the exact same way. So they had Eddie, Eddie having the same panic attacks, but the impetus was not even explained or not explained well. It's like, well, why is he having them? It's not even clear because Anna's not even in the picture. Mm. So this is a case of where it just, it's like the so attached to writing that scene exactly the same. So that people who understand canon will recognize everything. But why? The thing is, it's a very tiny ripple. If Eddie's not having panic attacks and Eddie's already broke. Because the thing is, Eddie's having that panic attack led to Buck finding out about the panic attacks. Letting, led to Buck confronting Eddie about the situation and pushing Eddie to break up with Anna. Telling him. Which he would do if he was already broken up with her. Right. So the whole ripple is irrelevant, right? So you just, it doesn't hurt anything to just go, okay, uh, if A didn't have a panic attack, that doctor would have just, assuming you really need to recreate everything that happened at the hospital, which nothing that happened at the hospital was remotely relevant. Um, but assuming you did need to use some of the events that happened at that hospital, because this is the same hospital where the helicopter crashed into the roof which the 118 was present for, so they went up and dealt with it because they happened to be there incidentally. I think it's the same hospital. But anyway, um, so assuming you need to use that helicopter crash something, which the author didn't, but assuming you needed to, okay? <laughs> if he's a little salty. <laughs> Nothing that was uh -oh. used was relevant to the story. They just wanted to... I don't understand then. I don't understand what they wanted. I was, I, I was going to defend them like I read it, but I have no idea what they wanted. I that. think... I think they wanted to write a moment of intimacy between Buck and Eddie where where Eddie had a, diff a panic attack for a different reason and Buck helps him through it. But it, it's fine to have Eddie having a panic attack for a different reason. That's fine. Because I do think I agree that Eddie's panic attacks are actually rooted back into the sniper shooting. But they didn't need to occur. It didn't need to come up at the hospital. It didn't need to come up. That doctor didn't need to make that comment. I mean, to, to write all that in... But not address the impetus for the hospital. Because why would Eddie need to have a panic attack that took him to the hospital when the whole Anna thing had already been resolved? It was just, it was all poorly explained. 
Um, and the thing is, if you take Anna out of the situation and you follow the ripples of Anna being gone, Eddie doesn't have that panic attack in the clothing store. Eddie isn't taken to the hospital. And yes, Eddie's panic attacks aren't revealed at that time or his, his, his panic situation, his propensity to panic is not revealed then. But if you recognize that this is rooted in his mental health, you could have the panic attack revealed in a different way, have it happen at a different time. Um, so, but If you just want to build intimacy between characters, there are other ways to accomplish that. Absolutely. But, I mean, all the thing is, once you take out that, you pull that thread of what it changes, it actually, in that episode, of, of the events of that episode, didn't change much. It changed little scenes between Buck and Eddie, and it changed that doctor having that horrible patient confidentiality breach. Um, because that doctor knows that somebody in uniform pushing a gurney is not there as her patient. Yeah, that's, that's a serious misstep. I mean, was it meant to be flirty? No. Okay. And she even asked him some question, as I recall, that alluded to him having been there as a patient. It wasn't just, I didn't expect to see you back here so soon. Because back here so soon could have been flirty, you know, like. Um, but there was something she said that alluded to the fact that he'd been there as a patient. How are you feeling? Did you, I think it was something like, how are you feeling? Did you follow up with the cardiologist or something like that? Whatever. But clearly somebody there with his coworkers in uniform is not there as a patient. She should have known better. Um, I would have sued her ass. I'm, I'm just saying. Or at least had her but, sanctioned or talked to severely, sternly. But the ripples, because Eddie broke up with Anna, Eddie really was firmly together with Anna towards the end of season four and then we go on break and then he breaks up with her fairly early in season five pulling that thread pulling having him break up with her after the shooting before the shooting either the when you pull it the ripples are small they're actually very small because her impact on canon was small um and her impact on eddie was small to be honest other than the fact that she revealed the panic attacks because he wasn't ready for how quickly his relationship with her was advancing and he didn't fundamentally want it but the mental health issues that he's struggling with those get really fully revealed at christmas time um so those could be there and manifest in other ways they don't necessarily have to manifest in that episode so but when you pull those events out from the stuff that happened canonically in that episode it doesn't impact much of that that episode's events because so much of the blackout stuff, the stuff that occurred in that, I think it was a three episode arc, were all externally driven events. All the events keeping the, because all the firefighters were stuck at the station because of the blackout. They couldn't leave. They were called in all shifts and everybody's sleeping on cots in the station. Um, so it's not like all of these little tiny personal internally driven things mattered much because you have this huge external pressure that was driving the events. And even if you take one character out, because of the sheer number of firefighters they had living at the station for that period of time, which was over the course of, what, five days, I think? Like, in real-world time, they were at the station for, like, five days or something like that, or was it longer? Um, but because of how long the, the, fire, the fire department were living on top of each other, and you have this huge external pressure that is basically controlling the timeline events, even if you had pulled one character out, they would have just slotted somebody back in. So let's say Eddie isn't there when they go after those alpacas and all the zoo animals that escape downtown. So what? They just put somebody else in that spot. Eddie wasn't actually instrumental in anything that occurred. Right. So it becomes a case of where there are some things that when you pull the thread, uh, 
it, it doesn't change much of what happened in Canon. And there are other things you pull the thread, it changes what happened in Canon hugely. And it's, it's usually not that difficult to at least figure out, well, this would happen, this wouldn't happen. But then you have to figure out, well, what would you do with it? So where, where I think people have a hard time with being transformative, especially whenever I read a story that encompasses more than a single episode, if it's a single episode tag and it's like 2,000 words and it says that it's canon compliant, I'm going to assume that what they mean is that everything in canon occurred up to the point at which I'm writing this episode tag. But when something is 30k and they say it's canon compliant, what I assume they mean is non, non-transformative. I mean, I'm just going to mentally translate it for you what that means. Canon compliant, 30k story, non-transformative. You're going to get a whole bunch of missing scenes that the writer thinks you should have seen on the show. And absolutely nothing will have changed by the end of the story. Or everything is catastrophically changed for the characters, and yet somehow none of the canon events have altered at all. And they still think it's canon compliant. And it's absolutely 100% not. I'm going to make up a ridiculous example, but I've seen, I haven't seen this, but I have seen examples that are this level of absurd. Buck and Eddie were already married, and yet the lawsuit happened, and Eddie got angry because he had to lose contact with Buck for the length of time that the lawsuit was in process. And they couldn't even live together while he could even live with his own husband because of a stupid lawsuit. And so he still joined the fight club. That It's so dumb, I had a hard time getting it out of my mouth. That's not how that works. That that's not how that works. And like I said, I haven't seen that ex- specific level of absurdity, but I have seen stuff that parallels that level of absurdity. That really where, is that absurd, yeah. Right? And so m- most people are kind of going, what, are you kidding me? That doesn't make any sense. But think about some of the things you've seen. There are things that make that little level of sense. And yeah, we've all seen some shit be like, really? That's, 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 that's what you're going to go with? That's what we're going to do. Okay. That's what we're doing. Okay. So when you get to that point where you're writing a um, novel or a novella or a novel and you're dealing with multiple or an arc that spans multiple episodes in canon or multiple years in canon and you're drastically changing your character's circumstances interpersonally but none of the events in canon are changing. Um, That's weird. Now to a degree when it comes to a rescue procedural like 911 or any other procedural some of those external events are never going to change because those are forces happening outside of the people on the show. Um, it's car accidents and those, a lot of those rescues are going to be the same. But the thing is, not necessarily the outcome might not necessarily be the same. Different paramedics might handle a call differently. They might save some, they might lose some. It might be different. And that's something you could explore if you wanted to. Different firefighters might change whether or not a rescue, a difficult rescue, was uh, was possible or not. Um, like say, for instance, they go on a call where they need somebody who's certified for swift, swift water. And Buck was the only one they had. And he's not there for some reason. Maybe Bobby left him back at the station house because he's still punching and they can't even live in the shack at the end of the parking lot. So here they are on a scene and they need somebody with a swift water certification. Um, but he's back at the firehouse being punished. Now, I actually wrote it into a story where... Um, Bobby has to tell dispatch what certifications he has on board before at the start of the shift so they know what they can dispatch them to. And um, 
when Buck is going to be gone for several days, off shift for several days, like several firefighter shifts, which is out of work for a couple weeks, um, he has to juggle the assignments around even more than they've been juggled around before uh, because um, he doesn't have anybody with Buck's facility at certain things on the ladder truck with Eddie being on the ambulance. So he has to put Eddie back in the ladder truck and then he has to get somebody else to partner with Eddie. That's not Ravi because Eddie doesn't have Buck's level of experience. So he needs like two people with moderate level of experience to equate to equal Buck's level, high level of rescue experience. And then he, so he shuffles the assignments around and then Eddie is talking to him later and says, and actually the swift water rescue, I think is one of the ones, maybe been an example I might have even used because it's such an unusual thing, swift water. I have a whole list of certifications that I um, wrote down because I want to send Buck to SAR. Um, and that's what yeah. popped into my brain. <laughs> yeah, I have I have this I have the same list. Uh, we probably got it from the same site. But I have bus Buck so. having yeah. um and I actually had Bobby talk to it tell might Eddie even be so, your you know, list. Um no I doubt it. We probably but we probably started from the same sites. <laughs> um, yeah, I did all the points and you sent me something. I think I sent you the same sites. Yeah, I think I sent oh. you the same sites yeah. I had started at. Um I didn't have. I hadn't made a list at that point. I just was sending you the same resources I'd been working on, looking at what search and rescue was. But um, Buck and Beck and Eddie have a conversation, and he explains to him, you know, when Buck's out, I have, you know, we have a different search and rescue profile than we have when he's here. Um, like I can't send us out for swift water rescue when Buck's not not here because I don't have anybody else certified for it. But you know, Bobby's aware of that. You know, he wouldn't be out in the field and he wouldn't get dispatched for swift water rescue and leave the only person who's certified for it except in case it happened once he got there and they didn't know it was going to be that yeah that could happen they aren't aware that this can be that circumstance like but on the other accident hand, on a bridge that they're they end up there's a victim in the water and they didn't know it when dispatch dispatched them yeah and sometimes you do what you can but i i see i don't know where the lines get drawn because i know sometimes they're doing what the best they can but there are sometimes there are things when they absolutely should not do if they're not trained to do it well if you don't have anybody trained to do a certain thing and somebody is gonna die what do you do i mean i think a responsible fire captain doesn't put that's one of the things that fire captain is supposed to be careful about it's not putting people who are um just going to get themselves killed in a circumstance where there's somebody else to rescue yeah because really i would think that if they had a situation where they knew there were going to be they would need certs like swift water or you know advanced climbing there's uh close quarters that they would actually be calling in sar to begin with potentially but there are like um uh i think in la there are only six search and rescue ready bureaus um and what if they're what if all all the ones that are remotely close to a circumstance are um did it fall busy? to a small brigade like 118 right yeah, uh, it potentially, but I mean, then it becomes a matter of which is the closest station that can handle it, that has the right gear, you know, and probably right. the right trained people. That's complicated stuff, y'all. Now, you talked earlier in a podcast that there are different kinds of dispatchers. Like, there's like 911 operators, but then there's the dispatchers who work with, who work specifically with like firefighters. And- um, in LA, is there's an LA, level? It, they, they actually are firefighters. It's an LAFD, um, um, I want to say it's called, 
yeah, here it is. It's called the Metropolitan Special Operations, Metropolitan Fire Community, Metropolitan Fire Communications. Metro Fire Communications, more commonly referred to as MFC or Metro, is responsible for processing 911 and non-emergency fire department calls and subsequently dispatching LAFD resources. Uh, it gives the location of the resource, which is adjacent to Fire Station 4 and the Los Angeles City Emergency Operations Center. The communication center works in concert with numerous allied agencies, including the police department, the L.A. County Fire Department, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, and others to ensure a coordinated response to emergency incidents throughout the region. Um, so those guys were super busy the day of the tsunami. The 78 dispatchers assigned to the MFC are either firefighter 78? EMTs or fi 78 are either firefighter EMTs or firefighter paramedics and have all served previously in the field. Their primary responsibilities are take call call takers and resource controllers. MFC has run in a similar structure to an LAFD field division and assistant chief commands the entire operation while working a weekday shift schedule. The dispatchers are assigned a 24-hour platoon duty schedule as, as they are in the field and are commanded on a daily basis by LAFD captains and an MFC battalion chief who also work the platoon schedule. Wow. That's a lot of people. So how did I for honestly forget how big Los, just, just Los Angeles metro area is? That they would it's need massive. that kind of... Yeah. So these are actual firefighters and either EMTs, firefighters... Cool that's or... actually the job that Eddie has in the new season. It probably is. Because um, he's in uniform. We see him in uniform um, in the promo. But who knows? Who knows if they'll actually make sense. All those fix where he's actually like leaving the fire department make no sense to me. This man has a child he must take care of. He can't just willy-nilly quit his damn job. And even when he announced it, he said, I'm leaving the 118. He didn't say he was leaving the LFAD. L-A-F-D. Right. Right. Because there's fire marshals. There's arson. He's actually a little new to the department to be an arson investigator. But he could be on that track um, to be trained to be an arson investigator. Um, not that that's the safest job in the world. But okay. Um, no. But anyway, I mean, when it comes to... To making, to pulling ripples, or we talk about ripple management a lot, and ripples are really, really important when it comes to making a work transformative. Um, what what ripples are you exploring that make what you did different than what happened in Canon? And sometimes it's just like there's not people think I'll, I'll hear people say, "Oh, this is great," and it's like all it is is between Canon scenes, right? It's like there's and and to some degree. There are some seasons in canon, and there are some other shows or movies or other canon works where you could make the case that an entire relationship could be happening between scenes, and that it wouldn't have an impact on canon events until those characters start dating somebody else. It's a little bit harder to say that Buck and Eddie have been in a relationship with each other all along when Eddie starts dating Anna and Buck right. starts dating Taylor. So... At some point, you just have to concede that your idea that their whole relationship is taking place between canon scenes doesn't fly. And that they're keeping a whole thing a secret. It's a fly. At some point, you got to give that up and you got to give up this canon compliant notion. You know, And I understand canon compliance can be a safe zone. If that's safe for you for a while to try to make their relationship occur between episodes, go for it. But don't regurgitate the episode. What the fuck is the point of that? 
That is not transformative. Regurgitating an entire episode to get a couple of character thoughts in is... No. There's nothing transformative about that. I recently, um, not recently, but um, I was working on part two of Requiem. Um, and it's the earthquake. We're, we're at the earthquake. And when I went into it, I was torn between just writing the, the aftermath of the earthquake and them coming home to the kids. And, you know, or actually riding the earthquake um then to have them coming home to the kids and so it was like i felt like the earthquake was kind of pivotal in my plot so i wrote it but it beyond the fact that hen does end up under the building and finds cat i didn't want that kid not to be found (laughs) since they're there but what i did was is that in the original timeline they didn't go to the hotel they fought a fire downtown um in a chemical plant. So Buck has no information about this earthquake and what's happening going in beyond what he saw on the news. And I had made some changes like that kid did get his leg amputated in the first timeline and the, and the little girl died in the first timeline. Um, so this is information that he's got from the news because he didn't work that scene originally. And that was my kind of way of making it a little fresh for him um, and making it transformative. At least I hope it was. Yeah, and you you have some immense ripples even over canon. Um, It's not like you just have it all be new to Buck and it's the same to the reader, because that's not what you did at all. It's it's completely different. I mean, I won't reveal your story, but it's it's a completely different um, approach to how that whole thing went down. Because Buck isn't the same. I mean, Buck uh, is... Buck's carried that magic for a long time, and it matured him a lot faster than... um, then maybe it should have. And that's an example of what I would think a good solid parental influence would do do to Buck. Not that his magic is a parental influence, but it is a maturing influence. And parental influences can be a maturing influence. Because Buck's relationship with everybody was so different. And his relationship with Bobby was, was more, even though Bobby saw a little bit of a parent vibe to Buck, it was much more of a balanced adult relationship than what we see in canon. Um, well, Buck's not needy. He has, I mean, they're, they're long distance at the start, but he's always had Daniel and Maddie, and that they've always been a team. Um, that's the only thing he's ever known with when, when it comes to his siblings, is that they're a team. Because they decided they were going to be a team for him when he was a baby, because he thought they were, you know, he's, they, th- they thought he was a gift. Right. Um, and they were going to protect that gift from their parents, and that's what they did. Um, and so Buck isn't the same. And so he's a little, he's settled. He had a career in city government before he became a firefighter. He was a civil engineer, which, you know, y'all, I'm going to, I'm going to say this. The qualifications to be a, a civil engineer are a little light in Los Angeles. I looked it up. And frankly, I think if you're going to be doing city management in a city that has fucking earthquakes on the regular, that you might need to have a master's degree. I know, right? That's just tragic. But all you need is a bachelor's. I'm just, I'm just putting it out there. Just continuing education might be good. Hopefully, they get it. Um, but that was it. But for the first episode of Requiem, is a really, really good example of what a, a buck that is more mature coming into the 118 would look like, and how that would at least ripple into his relationships with people, uh, and the tone of those relationships, because it matters. 
um, when you change something like that. Buck can't act the same. And if he's not acting the same, then his relationships aren't going to go the same. Right. And it um, was important that I, that I, I spent a lot of time figuring out his characterization and figuring out how, how others would respond to his characterization. Like, I honestly think that if the Buck and Cannon had adopted B, that he would have gotten some disapproval from them or disbelief that he could, he could handle it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, but beyond being a little shocked that he's, he's adopted the baby from the pipe when, when Bobby and Hen and Chim show up at his house and he reveals what happened and this is, you know, this is my new kid. They're all like, well, what do we do? (laughs) Where do we start? What do you need? (laughs) You know, they didn't question his ability to do it because that wasn't the buck they knew. They knew a mature buck who often has leaps of what they believe to be intuition at the time um, that has saved their asses. And if he's made a decision to adopt this baby, they all believe he had a very good reason for doing it. And he did. They're not questioning it. So it's just a different, it's just a different thing. So you have to think about those concepts when you're changing your character's circumstances. But you also want to keep the core of a character like Buck, um, who is, I think Buck has a lot of heart and a lot of empathy and he's very loyal. And sometimes that empathy and loyalty does not serve him in canon. So when I was zero drafting for Requiem, my thoughts were about how this magic would have changed him, how having this relationship um, with Daniel and Maddie and Daniel being like this super supportive big brother, how that would have um, rippled out in Buck's life. And Buck doesn't have a lot of that. He's not starved for affection when you meet him in Requiem. But I see in the first season of 911, he's he's starving for affection and approval. Yeah, absolutely. So when you make a big change in your character's history, it has to, it must ripple out because if he was the same buck that you got in first season in Requiem, it would have been profoundly off putting for him to have that magical ability. It wouldn't have made any sense to you. There would have been this cognitive dissonance the whole time you were reading that you might not have understood why you didn't like it, but you'd have been like, is Kira okay? <laughs> right? Does, does somebody call her house? <laughs> Is she a hostage right now? Because you don't. Because it it would just it would have felt off. And even if you didn't recognize exactly why it felt off, you probably would not have enjoyed the reading experience. Mm-hmm. And, and the interesting we, thing- we had that reading experience in other stories, um, where a character has had these big epic changes in their background or in their or in their history. And it's not being reflected in their present. And sometimes I can get really deeply uncomfortable with the story as a result. And not even recognize why in the moment. And then realize a couple of days later, oh, that's why that bothered the shit out of me. Jesus. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, the interesting thing is that I was just sitting here thinking through it. And unlike, see, Buck's um, insecurities and character, um, they're not... I mean, to some, some of them are flaws because some of these are things he needs to work on. Um, but flaws what sometimes make a character interesting. But these things are a lot of his this stuff, the problems that, that he had as a result of these things all manifested outwardly. 
And so when you take away or you resolve the conflict in him before canon occurs, you change how he is in canon. Interestingly, I think when you take a flip and you take a look at a character like Eddie, because he's got everything so buttoned down and so locked down, um, even if you resolve a lot of his issues, like his dysfunction with his parents, you resolve his PTSD, and maybe you make him a little bit more emotionally open with people he's close to, he doesn't change a whole lot outwardly at, in his work environment. He doesn't get involved in the fight. He doesn't get involved sure in the fight ring. He doesn't because uh, he'd probably be have better coping mechanisms. Um, he'd probably get in Buck's face if the lawsuit happened and goes, "Dude, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not breaking enough contact with you. What are you saying? This is dumb. If you're going to sit on going through a lawsuit, I'll support you through it. But I am absolutely not giving up contact with you." He'd be more emotionally available in his private life, but his professional life isn't going to change much because that's just not Eddie. So. Eddie's an interesting case of where the ripples are such that he probably is more cautious with some people, less cautious with others, but fundamentally it doesn't have much impact on canon events in terms of like at work because he isn't going to behave that differently with his coworkers because Eddie has had a degree of professionalism at work that Buck never had or that Buck was lacking, mm. I should say. Yeah. So that kind of thing has that, the core of a character has play. And the thing is, I've seen people try to soften Eddie and make him more emotionally vulnerable. Um, I don't have a problem with any of that. It's just a little weird sometimes when people will kind of choose to implement that, where it's like they have him, like... Um, like, I read a story where he just... I don't know. It's like every little thing that went wrong with Christopher, Eddie was collapsing in tears. Oh. And I was like, really? <laughs> really? I've seen that. And I think it's in Honey Trap, which you guys are going to be able to read in a couple of days, um, where he's, Eddie has, yeah, it's, um, Eddie's been doing um, virtual therapy because um, he didn't want to go to a person's office and he thought he would just kind of ease his way into this therapy situation that he got talked into because Christopher needed, wanted therapy. Um, and um, he tell, he tells his therapist that he actually kind of likes being emotionally unavailable. <laughs> Right, and honestly, I think that that's a skill that you need in the job that they do. Right, and and, to and a one Eddie, but not and one <laughs> one one somebody would not have gotten through um, combat without without developing, even if they didn't have it before he already went in. Which I actually think compartmentalization is something that he had probably already mastered. But I don't yeah, mean I that. Yeah, I like, pretty sure living in Helena's house was like little league seer training. Right, I don't. I'm not saying for this thing. I'm not saying that it was a case of where like Christopher had major surgery and and Eddie collapsed on Buck's shoulder and cried it out. I'd have no problem with that. I'm talking like to the degree of, um, I'm trying to think of a parallel. A Christopher school calls and says, "Mr. Diaz, this is Duran School. We're calling about Christopher." And without Eddie even knowing what they're calling about, he starts crying. He doesn't know if his son's in danger. He doesn't know if he has just sworn at a teacher. He doesn't know if he's... Yeah, that, that degree of, of shenanigans. It's like, really? This is not the way to make your character more emotionally available. It's taking somebody who is a good parent and repeatedly... And, and Eddie's the kind of parent that even if he does break down later, he's not going to break down before he finds out what's wrong with his son. And repeatedly, anytime Christopher, anything with Christopher comes up, Eddie is collapsing in an emotional fit 
before he ever even finds out what's going on. <laughs> I feel like this was written by someone very young. Well, it felt like it to me, too. Because here's the thing. Um, your brain doesn't actually mature until you're, like, in your mid-20s. Um, and I think that, I, honestly, even in my own writing when I was... And I have writing dating back to when I was 12 years old. Um, actually, I have some that's a little younger than that in notebooks. But, like, you know, as far as, like, typed media or whatever. Um, and... There's an emotional tone in my young work that is profoundly immature. And I think it really does boil down to how I processed emotions before my brain fully matured. Because you see younger human beings um, not assessing a situation the way an adult would. Um, and overreacting or sometimes in, in some cases underreacting. Um... It, th that's why when you're 13 years old and your boyfriend breaks up with you, it's like the entire world has ended. Nothing will ever be the same. Your life is over. Everything is ruined. It's going to go on your permanent record. It's going to be on your college transcripts. I mean, it's just like, no, I'm, I'm being ridiculous. But you know, yo, because everything is the worst when you're 13, right? So I think sometimes when we see these, these stories, and I'm not saying some 13-year-old is on AO3 writing buddy, but I'm not saying there isn't, so keep that in mind. Um, but I do think that sometimes when you see that kind of immature tone in a work, it's because the writer themselves doesn't really know how to process those kinds of emotions. Yeah, Romeo and Juliet, the three-day love story. The three-day underage love story that ended in, what, how many murders? Right? And then... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and two suicides. <laughs> Over a misunderstanding. Can we can we call that the origins of the terrible misunderstanding trope? I think so. I think so. But yeah, I just think it boils down to that. And it also also it could be um writerability. Yeah. The more you write, the more experience you have, the better you will be at conveying complex emotions and thoughts. And the easier it is to carry those through with the longer work. Because sometimes an author's ability to sustain something in a 10K story doesn't hold through for 40 or 50K. Um, like, I've over and over again seen authors where, like, the first 10, 15, 20K of a story is really good, really solid. And then the further along it goes, it's like, it's like, are they, are they, did this story speed up or is it just me? Um, or they start to lose track of their threads or it's like because working and pulling those threads through in a novel is a very different skill than doing that in a um, shorter work which is a fine thing to absolutely work on it absolutely keep working on it but it, it is a fun can sometimes when you're reading at something that has a structural problem can also be if it started good and it's fizzling 30 or 40k in it could also be come down to writer skill but to come down to that question of what if the characters are getting into some significantly altered circumstances or significantly altered relationships, and they are not changing or circumstances are not changing outside of external forces i don't think i think you're missing the transformative aspect and um i want to see the story and i want to feel the change and i want to see a, even if it's a small, I want to see a, a, a transformation by the end of your story that your character has grown and moved through the narrative in a way that I'm like, okay, yeah, great job. Yeah. I want it in my work too. 
And I have uh, higher expectations for myself than I do any other writer in fandom. <laughs> well, I have higher expectations for you than any other writer in fandom as well. I mean, I'm just kidding. Of myself <laughs> than any other writer in fandom. I'm just saying that I will judge myself more harshly for the shit that I do that I would give other writers a pass for. Yeah, I, I am that way now, but I have to admit when I was younger, I held other writers to the same standard I held myself to, which... I bet you did. I was, <laughs> I was, I such, I was such a perfectionist to one of my friends, but, you know, you're, this is really I not fair. I bet her generally confident list was really short when she was young. <laughs> it was very short. It was... <laughs> Teeny, teeny, tiny. <laughs> it might just had one name on it. Literally. Who is yeah. the writer that you really en- that you really enjoy that has the three names? I think she writes science fiction. I might, I might be a fantasy, but Bujo- but. Oh, Lois McMaster Bujold. Yes, that's, that's probably the only person on her list when she was little. <laughs> Whenever she started reading it, that was on her confident list. Everybody else was like, "Nah, dog." <laughs> Well, Ro- the funny thing is, one of the first writers that I was on my generally competent list when I was uh, romance writers uh, when I was younger was Nora Roberts. But I recognized her head hopping even back then because I told my right. mother once. I think I think I was probably fifteen or sixteen or something, and I told my mother I I didn't really have the language to articulate what my issue with it was, and I said there's something wrong with her POV stuff. And my mom would be like, "You think so?" I'm like, "Yeah, I said, I don't, something something screwy with her POV sometimes." I still really like her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, even as, even as a teenager, I thought her POV mechanics were kind of screwy. <laughs> she, I, you know, it is what it is. It's honestly at this point, although I am loath to say this on a normal basis because I would say, I mean, you put it on a t shirt, um, that bad craft is not author voice. Yeah. But on the back of that t shirt, you can say you're not Nora Roberts. <laughs> Because he does have some quirks that are are considered bad craft. I mean, head hopping is considered bad craft, but she does it like a boss all the damn time. There are some authors who can actually really own something that I would generally call bad craft and do it just just do it so well you don't care. That you actually want other people to do it that well so that you can stop considering it bad craft. Right. Um, Right. I would agree. No, I love but Nora it, Roberts. I actually prefer J.D. Robb these days over Nora Roberts. Same person, same author, different. They have, she's very good at the fact that Nora Roberts actually doesn't sound all that much like J.D. Robb. No, she definitely has, well, the thing is she, she has a different name for different genres. And I think that one of the things she did really well is that she changes her author voice for the different genre. And you should, if you're writing in a completely different genre, you shouldn't feel like a romance writer. Um, and I think that was one of the problems with a lot of romance writers who tried to make the transition to writing suspense or sci-fi or whatever, is they felt too much like romance Some writers. did it really well. I think Julie Garwood did it well. Um, was it Kay Hooper? Kay Hooper did it well. Nora did it well. Um, I was trying to think of that one lady that I was thinking that did it very poorly, but I won't actually say because that would right. be rude. Um I think I yeah, probably some, know who you mean. Some author. But, but, but actually, Lois McMaster Bujold, I believe her first book would have been ro- a romance that was sci-fi. It, had, it, was a, it would have been, rom- you know, first category romance, subgenre, sci-fi. Um, and that was the first book in the shards, in the, in the um, what wound up being, it's a little bit disconnected 
uh, it's the book about Miles' parents, uh, the Varkosican saga, which is Shards of Honor. And that reads pure romance to me, even though it's set, set in space and set on another planet. That is definitely a romance novel. Well, Whereas nothing honestly, else in the series in fantasy, is. In fantasy and science fiction, there is a lot of romance in it. Normally, it is like a, a subplot to yeah. the main plot. But, you know, romance sneaks into a lot of places. Well, because romance, because you, you can't, um, it's the human experience. You can't, you can't for a lot of people, not everybody. Yeah, no, I'm not. I mean, even even in the even in that, ordinary. I would I would have called uh, most of the Miles Rokosigan series pretty much pure sci-fi. But eventually, even the author turned her her attention towards getting him a, a life partner, um, because that is what we do as people is. You know, so people seek connection, emotional and intimate connections. Yeah. Yeah. So that is what people seek. But Shards of Honor, which was the first first book chronologically. And that's well, actually, I guess Falling Free is the first book chronologically, but it's really outside the series. But Shards of Honor was the first book she wrote. And it's definitely a romance. Um, and it, you know, it's it's. It takes place on another planet. It takes place, you know, in the, in the future or whatever. It's sci-fi in that regard. Um, but it's definitely a romance. It's beautifully written. But the voice between that and her next book, which was The Warrior's Apprentice, it was like, did she have a personality transplant? I mean, it was so different. <laughs> Both beautifully written, but just completely different. So, I mean, and that should be, when you're talking about a, a genre shift, you should have a tone shift. Because there's a reason why they're different genres, right? Yeah, I mean, and even if I, and even if you're, even if you're, even if fan fiction is your parent genre, you're still also picking a should be picking like kind of generally where your what your tone is for your your story, and part of your tone is determined by what kind of genre you're trying to write. And sometimes you can get people to think about their stories in different ways. Like sometimes people have a hard time pinning down. Like we go, what are your thematic elements? People look at me, kind of going, I don't know. <laughs> but sometimes you just look at look at things in different like ways. In nine one one is softer than some of yeah. Like say in Stargate. Yeah, and I would say even than Harry Potter. I think actually I think your hardest tone is in Harry Potter. Probably I, so. I, I, think, I have a lot of problems because <laughs> I think I think because I think a lot of it is not only was the magical world written pretty harsh in Harry Potter, but also the magical world is written in a way that you need your characters to build up a lot of defense. I mean, it's like your character, you want to ward your characters because the way magic is employed in Harry Potter and the lack of penalty for using magic on each other and depriving each other of their, each other's autonomy, love potions and all that jazz. It's a very harsh set of circumstances and it kind of makes you draw a hard line around, um, your character. So I think, you know, your hardest tone for good reason, for good reason is Harry Potter. Um, and so then, and then it starts to make sense. It's, you know, the world of Atlantis, Stargate Atlantis is a much harder world than, and, and a much set of hard, hard, you know, more weathered characters, despite what these, these, you know, people who, um, go through on, as firefighters, it is not as, as difficult a world as the, this world of fighting the wraith. So, um, wow, I could have actually done without that sentence. Um, I need a minute. Give me a minute. Okay. I got some tea and some mandarin oranges. Um, <clears throat> what were we saying? Is she gone? Um, we were talking about, um, I was chewing ice. You weren't missing anything, but I put myself on mute for everybody's <laughs> sake. Um, well, we were talking about 
briefly about um, tone, Los tone. Master Bujold and and um, um, hard, you know, hard tones and stuff and tones and genre changes. Um, and that if you're in a different genre, that oh, I remember what I was saying. If you change, if you, if you fan fiction is your parent genre, which I actually always find a little bit odd, but I understand the classification thing. Um, that um, you should still, it can help you to think about what are the norms for the genre you're writing if you can pick out, if you can at least pick out the genre you're writing in for your fan fiction, because that might help you settle into what your tone and your theme should look like if that's something that's hard for you to identify, which is really more of a craft thing than anything. But I have a story to tell. I have a story to tell about this. I used to have a reader on my site, and... Um, they were on Facebook, I believe, and they might have been in that old group that I had on Facebook. Um, and emphatically, he said one day that he did not read romance, that it was trash. So I responded back and told him, you must not ever Wow. And he was like, well, you're not a romance writer. I said, dude, I am 100,000% a romance writer. That is all I write. It is my primary genre. Romance plus science fiction, romance, plus fantasy, romance, contemporary. That, that's my deal. Romance, suspense. Th that's my whole deal. I am a romance writer. So if you've read me, you're fucking reading romance. Except for that one time that Julie decided to torture Kira by suggesting an urban fantasy challenge. <laughs> Kira then was tortured for an I entire challenge. End, I had to end that fucking story right there. To meet the burden of urban fantasy. Otherwise, I would have been writing a paranormal romance. <clears throat> uh, I would say the I have one fic that I would not consider two. That I would not consider the romance, any romance to be primary. And that would be The Absence of War um, and Unleash Your Demons. There yeah, is a subplot for Tony and uh, you know falling in love with Loki. But that is the subplot. It isn't the main plot. Um, and The Absence of War, I mean... Sirius gets with Zale, but it's a very background thing. It's it's not, but for the most part, I mean, the, but at the time, it was all romance all the time on Kira.com. I mean, KiraMarcos.com, in case you didn't know, which would be really weird yeah. if you didn't. <laughs> I mean, it'd be great. It, it it'd be great if you had the Kira Kira.com the Kira.com. Uh, um, right. It, it'd be great if that was if that was the whole thing, but um, I I, I didn't wonder who think. had it. Who has it? Um, anyway. Uh, yeah, so I do consider myself a, a romance writer first. And I would probably say romance and science fiction writer and then put fan fiction writer third. What, really? <laughs> no one has Kira.com? For reals? <laughs> I feel I feel kind of weird about that. And I'm not even sure why. It'd be like somebody finding out that nobody had Jilly.com. I just feel like someone should have it. <laughs> and I don't need another domain name because, like, every time I get interested in a domain name, I buy it. So I've got like, like, just list of like fifteen new domains that I'm stupidly renewing constantly. Well, you know, you might need them one day. I might. I feel like Noth is leading us astray. But I, my experience in fandom is, I I strive for a transformative experience. Um, I retreated into fandom because of stress and uh i can say that honestly in, in some ways um doing that retreat making a better decision for myself 
um, as far as like my creative endeavors, um, saved my life. And I'm not even being dramatic about it because I was, I was on the road, I mean, to an ulcer, heart problems. I mean, just like the, just the works and not, not and, and then also the depression. I mean, my, my clinical depression was at its worst when I was forcing myself into a creative place that I never wanted to go. So when you do that to yourself, you're going to pay a price one way or the other. And I recognized a lot of toxic elements in my life. And um, that was just one of them. And I think in the past, like, I don't know, five years, I've really dropped a lot of that toxicity completely. So when fandom shows their ass a little bit, looking at you, Harry Potter, um, it, can be, it can be really disconcerting for me. Um, as a writer, because I do consider fandom my, my safe space to a great degree. Yeah, it's like, please don't show your ass. I just can't deal with it. Please don't rain on my parade. <sighs> take your take your terrible elsewhere. Just just take it elsewhere. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not here for it. Um, and sometimes there are influences in fandom that are awful. And I don't just mean the bad writing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that I actually think that moving to... It, it's weird. You would not have thought that multi-fandom archives would be the transformative experience for fandom that I think it has wound up being. But it has become a hugely transformative thing for fandom because one of the things it eliminated was siloed spaces. And that is huge in ways that those of you who weren't around for siloed, when that was all you could get were siloed fan spaces that you just will not understand ever. Because if you haven't lived through siloed fan spaces, um, it's hard to explain how toxic those can become. And now they, they weren't all toxic. I, I don't mean to imply to even in any fashion imply that because it's just not the truth, but they could become toxic. We've done, we've done podcasts about this. So, um, you know, you, you can you can listen to some of that, but when it comes to the the issue with with fandom siloing, um, one of the things that changed that that dynamic in a huge way was moving away from the need to have siloed fan spaces that you don't have to have them. And the funny thing is, they started coming back because it is in the nature of fandom to want to fandom. To want to kind of squeeze each other together. and Which is, I think, where Discord's coming in, right? Right. Uh, because, and the thing is, when this was more open, and the thing is, it's not even the silo, it's strictly by itself that is making it toxic. Because Tumblr, you saw a lot of fandom gravitating towards Tumblr and Twitter and and those don't really have a lot of privacy settings. So it was all just kind of out there. So it wasn't really siloing, but it was also very one directional. So you didn't really have communities. So people started trying to find places that they could talk to one another. And that's when you started seeing Facebook groups and you started seeing um, the resurgence of some like, you know, um, like chats, like conversation groups, people trying to find different ways of communicating with one another about fandom where they could talk to each other about their fandom experience. And then you start having things like, I think Facebook was kind of ruling the roost for a while, but then discord came in and people are starting to move more and more to discord, because it's a true chat environment and you want to have the limitations um, that you have in places like Facebook. So 
it's easy to share on Discord and form big groups and have, you know, individual group chat groups and, um, you can have small groups, big groups, you can have focused topics, you can have broad general topics. And the thing is, the, the, what's happening is instead of fandom groups saying kind of large and broad, is they're starting to narrow again. And what's happening is when things narrow too much is if it, a lot of times when it comes down to the narrower the group, the, how big groups will, will fall apart for lack of... Um, moderation kind of thing they just don't can't they're not sustainable right if you have a community of a hundred thousand people if there's not moderation it's going to combust um or it's going to be a free-for-all and there actually was like a there's actually been legal cases about like the difference between kind of a free for but anyway i won't i won't i won't rat hole into the whole free-for-all kind of mentality <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole tangent but anyway um but she when really it, wants to i can tell some communities when they get that big become self-sustaining in a weird way without moderation but they are the wild wild west but the ones that that have moderation they kind of live and die by the moderation but the the smaller communities that aren't toxic it's totally on the back of who 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 runs it um there was this one very specific siloed space it was great for a very long time and when the moderator stepped down. The owner of the server stepped down and handed it off to the other, the other one of the, one of the mods to take over, and then several of the other mods to kind of step up and help out. It went toxic, like almost overnight. And I know the owner of that server thought that they were handing it off to somebody they could trust. It turns out they couldn't, um, and that's just the nature of the beast, right? Is when you're in small spaces that are run by small, you know, individuals, is you're kind of really st stuck with what. Um, and that's, I think that's the case for any internet community is, is the people who are um, making the rules in that community are and enforcing those rules are kind of determine whether or not that space is going to be safe or not. But the problem with a lot of these siloed fan spaces is they start to become echo chambers. And a lot of the people, especially in these newer fandoms, wind up with people who are relatively new to fandom themselves, who I think maybe have good intentions and who are trying, but they think allowing everybody to have space to have an opinion is, which is fine, is um, they don't recognize gatekeeping when they see it. And so people who can, people can gatekeep in polite ways. And if you've never seen polite gatekeeping or, um, you know, and so what happens, you're kind of shaming people into, into um, adopting your opinion or to agreeing with you because, oh, you must be, you must be, you must surely you must mean what I think you mean, right? I broke, I broke my own rule. You did break um, your own rule. I'm the boss. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, I I like I want a positive space in fandom. That's that's the experience that I want to have. Um, so that's kind of like the experience that I try to manifest. Um. And that's why I don't tolerate people who are profoundly negative in my space. Who just we we haven't had a lot of them, but we've we've had the individuals in the past who tried to kind of like come into our community, um, and change the tone, make it more abrasive. And sometimes, yeah, they, sometimes sometimes it's because they're they're coming from a siloed environment where um, that kind of um, behavior equals attention. And we have to be honest, there is a lot of attention-seeking in fandom. From all sides. But I think 
it's important if you desire to have attention that you work on shaping it into something that is healthy for you and that you don't fall into toxic situations and habits in order to get the validation that you're seeking. True story. Yeah. A couple weeks ago, I'm in the kitchen and I was fussing about something and I said, I don't need that kind of validation. And my husband was like, well, what kind of validation do you need? And I'm like, I don't know. So he walked by and patted my ass. How about that? I guess that was exactly the kind of validation that I needed. Because it made me laugh. I laughed really hard. <laughs> just like, okay, thanks, dude. It's like exactly what I needed. I'm going to pause the recording um, while she's gone. So, But I think that, you know, when it comes to um, just fandom experience in general, that seeking out positive environments is just the best choice that you can make. And working to be transformative in your work is um, empowering. And it will make it easier, I think. The more you write, the more you learn, the better you are. The easier it is to deal with assholes. Absolutely. Because when you know you've written something amazing, and you put it out there, and some jerk-off comes along and tells you that it's not that great, you can say, you know what? Fuck you, because it was awesome. You clearly have poor taste. Right, and the thing is, but sometimes just if it's if it's if it's as overt as this was awful, which I got, I did get that on a story once. Somebody actually <laughs> put just that word. They didn't put awful. What did they say? Mediocre or something like that. That was a one. Wow. It was a one, it was, it was a one word reply to a story. It was like mediocre. I was like, okay, kiss my um, ass too. I was like tempted to respond and just go asshole. How's that for one word reply? Um. But Dark, that's one of my favorite things Radek ever says in Stargate. Fuck you very much and goodbye. <laughs> um, <laughs> but one of the things what could happen is I think assholes are getting better about how to be insidious. We've talked about the whole racist accusation, right? But it's like if let's say you're mm -hmm. writing something transformative that's dealing with the ripples of, of events in canon, because one of the happens is sometimes canon doesn't deal with their own ripples, which is a fan fiction writer's dream, right? Is give me something to work with, right? Which for a lot of writers, that's what you want to work with is you want um, unexplored consequences, right? It's like oh, that has some consequences that need to be explored, which we've talked about that like a fertile ground for fandom is. Um, really good dynamic characters and an unsatisfying canon that is just fertile fertile and then by and god help you if you give them something to fix <laughs> <laughs> give me something to fix right so um if if you're dealing with the consequences of season five and you write something that you know is is a transformative look at events in season five and then someone call, comes along and calls you a racist that can be pretty difficult for even someone who's weathered and seasoned by fandom to deal with. Um, you just have to get, you just got to get current on the latest tactics of the gaslighters out there. You know, this is the kind of thing that they do. And what they're doing is they're trying to gatekeep you into doing what they want. Um, and you can tell them to shove their gatekeeping where the sun don't shine. Right. Because I think it's more being, you know, I think if you've gotten to the end of your work and you're having to ask yourself, is it transformative? Either it's not or you don't understand what kind of making a transformative work is. Because, I, I mean, I think it's pretty 
uh, certainly most of the writers I read, definitely, well, all the writers I read write transformative works. And I, um, and, and I think, but I do think some people are inclined towards anxiety and insecurity. And now that we've raised this topic, is your, is work transformative? They're going to ask themselves that question. Is my work transformative? Uh, don't, don't play that game with yourself. This is not about, um, this is not about me, me or Kira poking at any one person. We wouldn't do that. Certainly not on a live podcast. Um, uh, if I was that kind of mm-hmm. asshole, I would just poke you in person. Um, it's honestly, about- I have never encountered on rough trade, a work that I considered to be genuinely derivative. Well, I, f- I mean, I think all, I was, I think, I think I'm, I may, I may have the definition mixed up in my head, but I think all transformative works are fall under the blanket of derivative works. But it, but maybe I've got that terminology mixed up. Derivative works aren't considered transformative from a legal perspective. Right, right, right. But I think if you look up the definition of a transformative work, it is a they would they'll they'll describe it as a type of derivative work. But I I'd have to I'd I've have always to, seen them separately. Yeah, I'd have to I'd have to Google, and I'm not going to Google it right now. So, but anyway, um, <laughs> but, well, okay, let me rephrase it. I have never on Rough Trade um, or in the Quantum Bank seen a work, and I thought, Jesus, why didn't I just go read the Prisoner of Azkaban? <laughs> right? No, no, I haven't. I've not encountered that. I haven't either. So, if you're having that thought, I, I think is I do know that every time we do a craft podcast, we have people who are prone to anxiety who think we're talking about them. I'm not. I promise you, I'm not. You probably there. haven't even read your work. I'm sorry. Well, I, I may have read I'm, your work, I'm but the thi- but the, <laughs> the funny thing is that the, I think the the one or two times I have like specifically been paralleling or wanting to talk about someone's work, I actually talked to them about it ahead of time, and that has happened. Where I said I'd like to use this thing, this conversation we had, since I know they're part of our active community, and I want to use their con- the conversation or something about their work. I didn't say I'm not going to name the work. I'm not going to name you, but I know you'll recognize what I'm talking about. Are you okay with me having this discussion and talk to them about it ahead of time? Someone says in the chat room, I hate the following feedback. I know you probably didn't mean to blah, 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 or I don't want to tell you what to write, but I'm sure you didn't mean to do this specific thing and want to correct it. The next time somebody does that to you, you write back and say these words. I said what I said and nothing else. Just nothing else. I said what I said. Or I wrote what I wrote. Yeah. I, and, this, and the thing is, the thing is, it might be legitimately true. I mean, I don't know what your circumstances, but it might be legitimately true that you actually may not have considered the connotation of something that you wrote that has happened i've been in that circumstance now, I, I did have someone write me on facebook recently um to point out a math error that i made when it came to the ages of armand and patrice because i have dyscalculia so i made a math mistake and because i didn't get that story faded lady holder didn't correct my math um i'm not blaming lady holder it's my fault I should have checked it, but the way I wrote it and because of the dates that I used and the ages that I used, I actually had him meeting her when she was 14 instead of 24. And so she wrote me to tell me that I had made this math mistake. And I really appreciate being told that because, whoa, <laughs> that's not what I meant. Yeah. Now, see, here's the, see, here's the thing. Um, is even, different. Yeah. Even, with un, even if somebody hasn't solicited my feedback, if I notice that they have done something like that, where well, I know it's out of character for them, I would still poke them and say, "Did well, you she mean told me to?" Have... She said, "I know that 
you fundamentally wouldn't do this. So I'm pointing out this which is but, which yeah. is the same reason that I. But the thing is, I've read that story. It, even if I had baited it, I wouldn't have caught that because I don't usually calculate people's ages because I have terrible, I'm terrible with math. And even, and sometimes, sometimes even if I think that I'm calculating something correctly and the author got it wrong, I'm so not sure of my own math abilities that I just go, I assume the author got it right. So some people do that shit in their head. I know it's alien and weird. I, I, I know. But she my... probably read that, saw it and went, oh shit. Right. They don't I'm stop. I'm sure they... she didn't mean that. <laughs> which is which is probably exactly what happened is I know there are people the instant calculation in their head and so she instantly recognized it was a problem and said did she really mean for this character to be only 14 when they met and so she wrote you whereas I could have baited that story and I'd have would it would have gone right by me because I wouldn't have stopped and done the math on the ages um for those of you who don't know what dyscalculia is dyscalculia is basically I do mean basically there it's kind of complicated the math version of dyslexia. Yeah. So, um, sometimes you put something in your work unintentionally that you hadn't considered or that you were unaware of. Um, and in those cases, I could see somebody saying, you know, I, I'm sure you didn't mean to do this and would want to correct it. But the problem is 99% of the time when somebody says that to me, I did mean to do exactly what they think I didn't mean to do. And they're concerned trolling you. Or I just don't, or the error is so tiny that I just would never have given a fuck to begin with. <laughs> I did go correct all the dates in, um, at the absence of war, both on the Quantum Bang and on my own site, because it freaked me the fuck out. Um, but yeah. Um, I had somebody tell me, um, this was right after I posted Emergence, so I didn't have a big body of work up at that time um that and it was kind of that whole tone that whole tone of that comment about um um i'm sure you would want to, f to fix this but are you aware that you wrote tony as being a sexist i was like um and it, well, it was it was oh well i mean in, in canon tony was a little bit of a chauvinist for sure i don't know that i would have called him a sexist because he didn't think that women were less capable um, no, but I would definitely say he's a chauvinist. And I'm wondering to myself if they got that. They just didn't know that there was a difference between the two words. But um, they actually meant it was over over uh, Tony uh, Tony being upset that he was going to be potentially be a pink dragon. A pink girly dragon. Um, I'm sorry. I, I don't find that kind of reaction from a character like Tony to be especially because that was the part the other part of the conversation they seem to have missed he's just been told his biology is going to change and he's going to be self-lubricating and so that's when he told me so you're telling me not just am i going to turn into a dragon i'm going to turn into a shiny pink girl is that's the way he interpreted the whole thing right that's what his brain processed it out let me be honest with you i wouldn't want to be a pink dragon either <laughs> i would not i would prefer blue or green um but the thing is is that Maybe it doesn't. It doesn't mean that I'm a sexist. It doesn't even mean necessarily that Tony's a sexist. But if anybody thinks that wasn't an in-character reaction for most men of that of that age, especially of that age, um, you just aren't paying attention. If Buck would be thrilled to be a pink dragon. Oh yeah, he doesn't really? care. <laughs> but even he That'd might change a little bit. Pause about what do you mean? I'm going to start self-lubricating. How does that work? Are but then he'd be like, wait, wait. This could be convenient. 
I'm a, I'm okay with that part. <laughs> Eddie would flip the fuck out there, and they're almost the same age. Right. By the way, it's just a funny thing. I read, I just think I read something recently where um, Eddie's father is chastising him for dating a younger man. I laughed my ass off. I was like, younger man? I am reading a fic. It's an amnesia fic, so I hadn't pointed it out to you. Where Eddie, on the job, he, um, he has amnesia. He, he's in an accident. He wakes up with, with amnesia. Um, and, uh, he, the, his, uh, his last memories are of Afghanistan. Uh, and so he's introduced to Christopher, who's gone from four in his mind to 12. Um, and his parents are there and they're being all nice to him and he's married to Buck. Now there's two or three am- am- amnesia fics going on out there right now and you gotta be careful. Um, but the one that I was reading, um, Ramon was like, wait, he's upset to be married to you? You're like one of the best looking men in California. <laughs> <laughs> I do like it when he's Buck's upset. so... He just, doesn't, he just doesn't understand how he got here. He's not upset or angry. He just doesn't know how he got here. I do or, like I, stories I might be where... contemplating those two things. But I do yeah, like stories where... where Buck is so good with Eddie's parents that it actually improves Eddie's relationship with his parents. Uh, I always find that to be amusing. I have actually, even though well, I have a... We made a good decision right? to say approve of. I, I actually, <laughs> despite the fact that I really have a real aversion to amnesia stories, I've actually read two in the 911 fan that were highly recommended that I did enjoy. The one was where Eddie died during died ostensibly during a rescue i want to say a swift water rescue actually speaking of swift water um i really enjoy that when he comes back for christmas right he they, he figures out who he is um it has some improbabilities about fingerprinting in it you kind of have to kind of overlook that suspension disbelief i got if i got through it you can get through it um <laughs> first responders in california fingerprinted but anyway um I, I think it was just, I think the author tried to kind of lampshade it that there was a long delay in getting the fingerprint results because of the, because of some reason. And they, they did, they did lampshade it, but it, you know, anyway, um, there was that one and it was just really sweet because Buck did get custody of Christopher and, or he was trying to get custody of Christopher and he was fighting the Diaz's in that one, I think. And he was at the risk of, and the thing is, Eddie had already changed his will. The Diaz's knew he had changed his will, and they were hiding it from the courts. I think that was that one. But anyway, and the other one was the one where Buck wakes up with amnesia. Yes, it's called Leave the Lights On, I'll Be Coming Home by HMS Lusitania, I guess. I don't know how to pronounce that. And the other one was the one where Buck wakes up with amnesia, and... Everybody tells him he and Eddie are just friends, and Buck is incredulous that these two are just friends. He's like, really? We don't act like friends. You should visit my boyfriend. Are you sure? <laughs> I really enjoy the, I really enjoy those fics where somebody wakes up, and they don't really actually have amnesia. They're just, like, coming up at a surgery, and they're all surprised by their spouse. Wait, you're my husband. You're so hot. I got you? <laughs> I think that's adorable. Okay, so Susan says it's a long A. So HMS Lusitania? HMS Lusitania. Yeah, that sounds okay. familiar to me too. Lusitania. Anyway, so I have, I cannot remember the other one. Um, the one where it was, um, yeah, I mean, I know the HMS is, yeah. Um, but uh, I, I'm not familiar with that particular ship. So, but in any case, uh, the, other, the other story I can't remember the name of, but it definitely was a Buck Wakes Up from some sort of accident, unable to remember, uh, 
all but the, he can remember the first year. He doesn't remember Eddie joining. And he just thinks he and Eddie are together. And everybody tells him they're not. And he's like, are y'all sure? <laughs> we act like we're together. <laughs> and I'm usually much better at seducing someone than this. Are you sure? Oh, is that the name of the ship that brought... I mean, I knew it was the sinking of a ship that brought the U.S. into the war. But I actually never knew the name of the ship. I just never paid attention. Huh. Okay. Either that or that point in world history, when I learned that point in world history, it was just too big of a word for my little brain, and I just went filing that right That's out. That's entirely possible, too. But speaking of ships that went down, I watched Jaws recently. Also valid. <laughs> I don't know why you would do that, but... I was in a mood, so I watched Jaws. Sometimes you're just in the mood to watch a big shark, a big fake shark, eat people. <laughs> If I was going after a giant, after a giant shark, I would definitely need a bigger boat. Um, so when you are, when you're, when you're working on a, um, a transformative, trying to make your work transformative to try to wrap this up. If anybody has questions about what it means to be transformative, you can drop them in the uh, ask a question for the podcast channel because we might not see it because sometimes I'm not paying attention to the podcast chat. So you can drop them there and we'll be sure to answer them during the podcast specifically about transformative works. But sometimes I will say <coughs> that assuming you're not doing it out of anxiety, that if you're questioning how transformative this is, it might not be transformative. That That's actually a valid, probably a valid metric because if you have to stop and ask, is this too, is this too much like the source material? It probably is too much like the source material. And I don't mean in tone or like in the genre because we all do that. We all write things that are similar in tone in the genre. A Harry Potter story should look like a Harry Potter story in general. Um, if, if it doesn't, there comes a point at which it is no longer a Harry Potter story, right? People use Harry Potter's name, but he's a, you know, a blonde vampire living in Montana with no magical powers. And you're starting to question, what does this have to do with Harry Potter? Um, there, there is that line, you know, like sometimes you'll, you'll come across a concept that is transformative in its own right. I mean, it's just like putting it down in a fandom instantly transforms that fandom into something else. Um, and when you do that, you run the risk of pushing it too far and it no longer sounding like a fan work but yeah like you said like an original work with fandom names which is exactly what happened to me in synthetic and i think i would have known that if i'd zero drafted yeah possibly i mean i will say some of your characters definitely still you, you didn't have very many characters on screen they still felt like it, the characters Sometimes I've read stories that are ostensibly still supposed to be a fandom character, but I think it's just more allure for that fandom audience than it is that in yeah. any way intent intended to ever have been that fandom character. Um, and that's going too far. I mean, why don't you just call it original? I mean, you, that's what you're doing is you're writing original. Um, Let's be honest. But, you get more attention in fandom. Most writers who write who, who write for publication do not get the level of attention that you can get on AO3 if you put out 500k. Especially if you get involved in a big fandom community and you let it be known that you're putting out a 500k story. I mean, you're getting, you know... I mean, like, a mid-list book these days might sell 15,000 copies. I get 15,000 individual visitors a day on my website. At the minimum. Free and familiar makes the world go round. Right? Um... 
And the thing is, if I wasn't writing fan fiction, if that avenue got cut off to me, I would work really hard to create a world that I was really enamored with and characters that I was really enamored with and just probably write in that world, write adventures and stuff for those characters. Fan fiction of my own original work uh, ad nauseum until I was bored with it and then create another world. I would too, probably. Because that's what I really like about fan fiction is being able to immerse myself in the familiar and take my take these characters off on different tangents and different different things that have that have no relation to each other that have no connection whatsoever, right? But it's still the same group of characters that are familiar and putting them through different things. So I would create my own world, or I would work with you know other authors to create some you know common shared universe that we could all go and write our own derivative works in. Um, if fan fiction was cut off as an avenue for us, because I like that experience of having those different, it's like different adventures reset back to zero and start again. And that's basically what you're doing. You're like, here's this world we all understand. And I'm going to take these characters to their different paces and do different things to them. If they're just going through the paces they went through in Canon, it's not, it's not transformative. And the thing is, when it comes to the definition of transformative, legally, it's difficult. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be straight with you. It is difficult legally because where there are some things that are clearly transformative and some things that are clearly not transformative, the closer you get to the where those two meet, the harder it is to tell them apart. And yeah. it is a matter of one judge's opinion as to this is transformative and this is not. And they could be almost Honestly, the same thing. Honestly, it's easier to get away with satire than it is transformative. Definitely. And satire is considered transformative work. And you can get paid for tra satire, and you can't get paid for transformative work, generally. So, as, as long as it's in copyright. Yeah. And also, commentary is a form of protected fair use that's transformative. Um, somebody had mentioned up above um, that, like, characters commenting on the show and how unrealistic it is is entertaining. Um, that actually is... I mean, in real life, not characters doing it, but in real life, people doing commentary and reactions to copyrighted material is protected as fair use of copyrighted material that they can make money on, depending upon how much of the copyrighted material they use. Which is why when you see like a YouTuber doing a, a reaction video or a commentary on a movie, they don't use the whole movie. They use pieces of the movie. Um... Because to some degree, that's protected under fair use. But they have to be careful about how much and what. And sometimes it's a matter of also fighting the battle. So, like, there have been a lot of, like, uh, reaction videos to songs that are that people argue are covered under f the fair use provisions of copyright protection where they're reacting and giving their reactions to a song. And that seems to been flying by. But when they started doing the reaction to an actual music video, they were getting copyright right struck on the music video itself, not on the song. Yeah. And it's a, and so there's like, it's like what it, it's like. And that's a question of, are they been letting the song slide by, but they're not going to let the music video slide by. It, it's just, it's a weird thing. And it's somebody, and it's you, not YouTube doing the copyright striking. Somebody else has to do that. So, um, but also, when somebody sends in a takedown, there's kind of is a reflexive, um, and most companies do reflexively take down, and then you have to prove that you have the right to have it up. So that's why a lot of people are very careful to understand about where the lines are. But that line is blurry. Like, how much are you allowed to use? That line is blurry. Um, there's actually an issue for a while there of 
YouTubers commenting on other YouTubers' videos. And, like, they would use, like, five or ten seconds of another YouTuber's video and comment on that section of it. And they were getting copyright struck because of uh, that five or ten second clip that they were using and commenting on. Which they actually was totally covered under fair use. That few seconds. Because it was actually legitimately... Basically, especially like news podcasters who were, you know, using it as a clip for the news. Um, and so they would have to go then fight with YouTube that they were covered under fair use to do commentary. And they can actually make money on that commentary. So um, it, when it comes to the fair use doctrine, everything is blurry. How much can you use? There are some things that are very clear. Some things are not. When it comes to transformative works, again, it starts to get the further apart it is between, you know, if you got on one side, you've got plagiarism. On the other side, you've got a fully transformative work. And those are at the opposite ends of the spectrum. The closer they get together, the harder it is to tell which side of the line you're on. So if you're wondering, is your work transformative? I don't know that I have a good metric for you, except to say, if you're retelling a lot of canon events and you're using a ton of canon dialogue, you're swinging away from transformative. Molly, you're in trouble, girl. <laughs> right? Just, you're in trouble. Yeah, because if you're having to look up something in a, uh, a Harry Potter book so you can quote it exactly, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Now, I have occasionally used some direct lines of dialogue because those lines of dialogue were very important episodically, and they became really relevant to my story. But that's yeah, very one or unusual. two lines, but not whole paragraphs. Right, but I mean, literally, it's like a handful of lines. And there were times when I actually was quoting stuff from an episode, and I did it from memory. I didn't look it up because uh, I knew in this circumstance my character was different, and so the character was going to say it the way my character had evolved to would say it. And the funny thing is, I got it pretty damn close to the episode because I looked later. <laughs> I was like, "Well, that mm-hmm. was that wasn't good memory. That was probably just that it it." it made sense for the scene to just go that way. Um, but yeah, there, I think there was like one or two times when I knew a line needed to be exactly the way it was in a, in the show, because it was either a pivotal line in the show or, or whatever it needed to be there. But and we're talking a line, but, and that's a case of where I want to get it right. I had to not- use a line in destiny from Harry Potter. Um, and when it, it's when Harry's on the stand and he's thinking about what to do, um, and he thinks about something that Hermione said to him. And I had actually I had a choice to make between the line that comes from the book and the line in the movie, which were different. Same content, different word choice. And I ended up picking the movie quote. Um, I was just curious. You're a great wizard, Harry. You really are. Something like that. Which is not exactly a... I mean, sometimes the line is exact. winds up being exact. But it's not like it's... Like, the phrasing is so um, unique that it would be, like, the way only that character would say it. You know what I mean? Right. And Um, because he asked him, what would she say to you if she was standing right here? I picked a piece of dialogue in their past um, that would make him feel better about about his situation. And also, it was like a... When you do that, when you make that choice, it needs to be a considered choice. And it... I hope that when you read it, and if you've read the book or watched the movie, that that scene kind of popped into your brain and resonated with you as Harry was sitting there on the stand trying to make the decision about whether or not he was going to anchor a revenant. Because in that moment, in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, 
Hermione Granger has more faith in Harry Potter than anybody ever has his whole life, as far as he knows. So it's a profound moment. Yeah. And I can see why you'd want to get that line exact so that it resonated with how she'd exactly said it, because it's a recollection of from his memory. And there are also times when you do pull something from a character's memory in canon that you do want to be exact. But in general, if you're just quoting huge swaths of dialogue or retelling an because episode... Because you're regurgitating whole scenes. Right. Retelling. Um, I'm always really hesitant to use canon event to to stage my story around because often that means I am going to wind up retelling big swaths of canon. And sometimes little pieces of it are necessary. But like, let's say you're doing, you, you, you want to tell an NCIS story and um, like in DeNovo, I could have picked an NCIS case for the case that Tony was working on, but then I would have been regurgitating an NCIS case. And if I didn't want to regurgitate the case and I didn't want to regurgitate the episode details, then I would have had to be constantly summarizing what was going on for the people who hadn't seen that episode. It was easier to do my own case. It honestly would have gotten tedious for you. Yeah. It was easier just to write my own case, right? It was easier. Um, and to, to do that tap dance between, you know, writing between the scenes, because I don't, I'm not going to retell a scene. And to do that tap dance of rewriting between the scenes is just of writing my episode, my, my story to occur between the aired scenes of a show is frustrating. And, and I've, I did, I had to do a little bit of that for my Quantum Bang last year, because um, my story starts right after Buck finds out about his the whole Daniel thing. And I insert something completely new immediately after that and have him change a pivotal decision. Um, so he has this therapy session, which as far as I know, didn't happen in Canon, but it may have, but as far as I know, it didn't. And he has a therapy session out in the parking lot. And in the course of that therapy session, he gets enough clarity about his own thoughts. He realizes he doesn't want to tell his crew about what happened, but because of where I chose to start it, there were the other episode, the other events in Buck Begins that were really pivotal to the very beginning of my story arc. And so I kind of had to gloss over and write in between those scenes. And it was a very, just the very beginning of my story, but it was really annoying for me too. I would have, I would have found it really frustrating. I, I feel your pain. But because I wanted my change to be before he told the crew, that's where I had to set it. And since most of the episode Buck begins is flashbacks to his childhood, most of the episode wasn't an issue. It was those few episodes of them going out on that call and his confrontation with Maddie, that was a few scenes of him, of him going out and the, you know, him telling the crew and that the, him telling the crew changed. So that wasn't an issue. His confrontation with Maddie went almost exactly the same way. Um, his confrontation with Chim went different because the rest of the crew didn't know. Um, so, but the writing between the scenes aspect of it, which is, again, it was a very small part of the story, just that little bit frustrated me because I don't like to write that way. I don't like to write between the scenes. I find it, I'd rather write my, that's why when I wrote Here For You, I wrote my own rescues because I don't want to regurgitate stuff that's in canon. Now, I might have wound up picking something similar to canon at some point, but that would have been unintentional. Yes, the, the toaster. toaster. And also because that poor, the, the graded poor, toaster. 
toaster. But also because the, a lot of the stuff in the rescues were to, some of it was to break tension, but other aspects of it were to kind of help push um, Eddie and Buck forward in their relationship. I don't know who names their line of appliances Smeg. I just find that odd. But, you know. Aren't they Swedish? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, that is a expensive refrigerator. 2500 bucks. I got mad that mine cost 900 <laughs> I was like, really? I mean, it's cute. I'm going to go with this. I like it, but... <sighs> I mean, I think if you were able to successfully pronounce everything at Ikea, that you might actually summon a demon. So be careful. Right? I think after taxes, ours was about 1200 to be honest. But it's just ridiculous. It shouldn't cost that much. Right? Um, but so it's just, it's one thing to use a little bit of canon. We all have to use, uh, not all, but unless you're writing something that's just wildly, well, I guess we all do have to use some canon because you're at least using the canon characters. But, right? Either using the canon characters or using their canon circumstance. But we, if it's fan fiction, you're using something canon. Um, so we all have to do it some. It's just, you know, if you want to, if you're asking the question of yourself, is this transformative? Um, did How much did you change? How much of this is, I, like I said, I think that the core of the transforma- transformative yeah. process Meg is, is what is. Italian for those on the podcast. Oh. Okay. Fair. <laughs> Very fair. Um but for, um, I do think the core of the of the of transformative process. Wow, of course, of course, it's an acronym. Um, I am not trying to pronounce that ever. You just got to Google it if you're on the if you if you're listening to this in the future podcast. Just just Google Smeg Origin, and you'll you'll get that ridiculous thing that we just got in the chat. I no. Um. Anyway. Um. Well, that's if it, that's that's if anybody could find that. Uh, but if anybody is curious enough to uh, to Google the chat room, um, <laughs> the podcast chat, you could Google in pod chat, podcast chat for the words "Smeg is Italian," and you will find the link that Miss Knotts put up. Um, there, because there will probably be thousands of messages up in the podcast chat before this ever posts. But anyway, um, if when it, I think the what if is the core core of the of the the transformative process, and um, it's kind of should ripple. There should be something that that changes from there. Now, when it comes to transformative visual works, uh, the line gets even blurrier because I know that a lot of people have. That somebody mentioned earlier that I won't name the movie, but. Um, like people even doing gift sets and stuff for stuff from some certain particular certain huge studio. Um, hmm. Yes, you can search the chat. You can't Google it. But if you do like visual art, um, that sometimes you can get a copyright strike for just having um, a gift set. And then the question then becomes, you know, where does fair use come in with images? And there's like a whole fair use doctrine about images that's very, very different, but but also in some ways the same. And when it, so when it comes to fan art, what is what is what is what is a transformative work? And so that I, I'm really not remotely able to speak to that. Um, you just have. I to, wouldn't want to be a copyright lawyer in Hollywood. 
No. I mean, it's That's rough. That's my takeaway. But I'm sure, but the thing is, one of the things that's nice about the OTW existing is that one of the things that they keep, they are a charity, and one of the things that they do help pay for is copyright lawyers on their side of the fence who help continue to fight the battle for fair use. So, um, you know, so as a reader, if you're reading something um, and you're, you're cruising along and you're thinking about this podcast and you're thinking, is this transformative? Please don't use anything we've said as a appearing in somebody oh else's comments, as appearing in somebody else's con- comment section. I don't really think this is transformative and maybe you should read the definition of a transformative work and da, 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 I mean, please don't. Please do not. Because what's done is done. What's up is up. And honestly, if you really, really, really think something is not transformative, meaning it is beat, beat for beat the same, um, there are people who on AO3 whose whole job it is to evaluate that stuff. Submit an abuse report, and they'll get back to you in three to six months. <laughs> and let you know and if they... On. And they will let you know if you were if they feel you were right or wrong. And um, this is not a citizen's arrest situation on uh, for you. So, you know, I have seen plagiarism on Ao3 that I felt was plagiarism um, that I uh, submitted abuse reports on as being plagiarized. Now, I've actually never submitted an abuse report um, for plagiarism where Ao3. I think didn't agree with me because it has to be have a significant piece of the work because honestly a sentence or two is not plagiarism because you can inadvertently write the sentence same sentence the exact same way as somebody else I've had yeah, I've I had mean, I, I've had plagiarism checkers yeah. pop and say that one percent of my work is plagiarized and I'll go look and it is a word it is a sentence that is so commonly phrased that it is pro- and it will list It'll literally list at least 15 different sources that have the same work. And it kind of actually is asking, which one of these did you plagiarize this from? None of them. Um, that's not plagiarism. I had that happen to me in one of my recent things. And I used word for word the same piece of dialogue in another story. It was my own work. I was getting poked by the plagiarism checker for my own work. <laughs> I was like, I think I'll give myself a pass on that. Right. But then I did go ahead and edit it. I'm like, that's ridiculous. But that's just my. It's just sometimes you phrase things, but also some things are just way every time. Yeah, and sometimes it's just the way something is phrased. It's just a common way of phrasing something. Um, Although honestly, if 15 stories have phrased somebody's response to something the same way, maybe you might want to phrase your response a little bit more originally who knows but anyway um if but if there's a significant amount of like a pair you know several paragraphs that are obviously lifted that have something very unique in them i will report it for plagiarism but i had somebody report something for plagiarism on my behalf recently there was no plagiarism uh, where where some themes and I tropes that happened and st- with me too because there's somebody on ao3 basically retelling harry potter and the soulmate blonde um in this particular case, there were some things that were thematically similar, but outside of thematic similarities, I actually didn't see any similarity between the works at all. So it, it really wasn't, and it wasn't even idea plagiarism because the, the thematic, the things that were thematically similar, um, there's a lot of writers who've who've hit on those tropes. So the fact that we we're using similar tropes, so I don't really know how this person got to this person is plagiarizing you. Um, but they submitted a policy and abuse report on it 
And that's fine. The thing is, AO3 doesn't touch the story while it is under investigation. And then AO3 came back and said there's no plagiarism. Of course they did. Because there wasn't. Because I investigated it myself once they told me I'd been plagiarized. Because of course I did. Um, All of in it. And I knew it wasn't. Actually, I got somebody else. To, somebody else very nicely fell on their sword and actually read the story for me. I just ran it through a plagiarism checker. A plagiarism checker came up zilch. But somebody else fell on their sword and read it for me. And they said that it was similar thematically. And then I did a quick skim through and agreed that it was similar similar th- thematically, but not the same. Um, but anyway, it's not like getting copyright. If you submit a policy and abuse report... Um, it's not like that. It's not like getting copyright struck on YouTube where they take it down and then they put it back up if they find that they're wrong. It's not like that. It's it will stay put. So if you're wrong and the author's not notified or anything, as far as I know, it just sits there while they investigate. And they might contact the author if they think there's cause as part of their investigation. But if they find there's no foundation, the author's never notified. So if you really, really question, is this transformative or is this just a retelling of the book with different characters? Submit a policy and abuse report. Just do it. It's it's not going to hurt you at all. And it's definitely not going to turn you into a concern troll in somebody's comment section. Not that I'm advocating wasting the time of AO3's volunteer team. I'm not. But if it really is something that's just like sticking in your craw, just do it the right way. Don't be a comment troll. Never be a comment troll. If I can refrain from commenting on some of the fix that I rage quit in the last two weeks, you can too. Yeah. I will admit, when somebody puts a prompt up as a story... I always submit an abuse report on those because they are against terms of service. I hate that. I hate it. The only thing worse than a prompt is a fix search. I submit policy and abuse reports on those too. And they always get taken down. I get little notes from AO3 saying they were, and usually pretty quickly too, saying they were found to be in violation of terms of service and they have been removed. It's a little bit spiteful, but I don't care. Those are blatantly in violation of terms of service. They are not a transformative work to do a fix search as a fic. Could y'all help me find this fic where this and this and this and this happens? Bitch, no. Get your <laughs> ass. You. <laughs> Disarm on your whole heart. Get your ass over to a Discord server where you belong. Go find that siloed environment that likes this kind of toxic behavior. It's so frustrating. And, and oddly, 911 is like known for it. I mean, it's like oh, all yeah. over the place. There was one, um, I saw somebody trying to defend it one day about, somebody mentioned something they were frustrated about it, and somebody else tried to defend it. Well, what does it hurt you? Uh, it's against terms of service, and it's annoying. Because these bitches will tag their fix search like it's a fic. I hate that. I hate it. So, yeah. so that comes How up- is it concerning me? It is ruining my experience. And it is a very simple, simple thing. If you're on the page, if you're on the fix search, if you scroll down to the bottom in the footer section and you hit policy and abuse, report or report abuse or something like that, I remember how it's phrased, it populates the link of the fic automatically. And then all you have to say is you have to say what part, it asks you to give a summary and you can say violation of terms of service. And then you can say in the explain and you can just say, this is a fix search, not a transformative work. Or, this is a prompt, not a transformative work. That's all you have to say. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. She's training you guys to help her with this project. (laughs) (laughs) Because this is a fandom and junk discussion. 
<laughs> oh no. <laughs> so we do hate it. We do hate it, precious. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's awful. I can't stand it. It will ruin my whole damn like why? I and or, one of them, I even knew the exact fix she was looking for. Did I respond to tell her? No, I didn't. I just reported no. it. <laughs> Good night. But, um, yeah, you know, so I think that I, uh, I, I like to find beauty and amazement and entertainment in fandom. And I don't like to, although today, today, my dumbass... And I do mean, oh my god. The mods bore witness to this, the aftermath of this. You guys did not miss anything. Okay, so I was over on AO3, as one does. I clicked on a fic, as a dumb bitch did. And it was, it. the author warned me in advance. I'm not saying she didn't. She warned me in advance that neither Christopher nor Buck survived the tsunami. And it was this little thing. It's like under 4K. So I clicked on it. And I don't know why. I don't know why. But I'm about to spoil the fuck out of this fic for everybody listening. Just FYI. I don't even remember the title. They're dead. So, yes. <laughs> so Eddie finds Christopher's glasses when they're doing rescue. And they end up at the vet hospital eventually. And he's checking um, for Buck and Christopher's names on the list. And the lady directs him to the black tent. Like she did to Buck and Cannon. And Bobby and him go in there together. And they find Christopher and Buck. Side by side. Covered. And Bobby leaves Eddie alone. With them. And he lays down and dies between them. Uh. Broken heart syndrome. Y'all. My whole face was soaking wet. I ugly cried over three it was under four thousand words i mean and well, it, it takes me all the way to the fucking end if freedom just another word nothing left to lose to get there and i was just like what is why did i click on this what's wrong with me how why am i like this and the thing is, is that it must it must have been know. it must have been well written emotionally effective otherwise you just would have frowned at it and moved on um i I was, she tore my heart out, and I don't know why I read it, because she warned me. I mean, the tags were specifically super clear. I'm not, I mean, sorry for that last part. But, I mean, she did warn me of major character death, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And she did make it clear that neither Buck nor Christopher survived the tsunami. So I wasn't unprepared for what I was going to get <sighs> until Eddie died of a broken heart. And I think the reason that it hit me so hard is that I believed it. I didn't doubt his response in the least. Well, that's transformative. Yeah. Yeah. I should totally send you to the corner. That was awful. I don't, it was great, actually. The, the, the writing was on point, but I felt awful afterwards. <laughs> so I went over to the mods and told him, I said, oh my God, look what I did. I'm so, um, oh, AJ went and found it. Don't, don't, don't click on it. Don't click on it. But it, yeah, the, the, the writing's on point. It's called I'll Be Yours Forever Till Forever Falls Apart by. Milk coffee. And the L is oh, AJ. Oh. We can't the thing is the L is a one and the O is a zero and I hate when people do this shit. Okay, it's M I one K C zero F F E E. Yeah, it, it tore my heart out. I um 
I don't recommend you click on it. I mean, it, but, but like I said, it was great. The, she 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 worked me over like a hostage, though. And if and if you're not if if you need a really good cry, that's the fit for you right there. And sometimes you do. Sometimes a bitch just needs to cry. Maybe I needed it. Uh, I didn't even know it. I'll just go watch Steel Magnolias. Thanks. <laughs> right. <laughs> So one of the mods told me that too that she would just go watch Storm Night Nuggets if she wanted to cry like a baby. Um, I mean, seriously, I mean, I, Christ on a cracker, because um, that's just that's just not cricket. But I, I mean, I'm not. I mean, a lot of times that authors will do that to you; they won't even warn. But that author warned significantly, specifically about what was going to happen. So I, I wasn't unprepared, but. I had a very visceral reaction to to the end. It was because Bobby's standing there having. <laughs> I just I'll cry again. <laughs> I I'd be asking some questions. Why did you leave him alone? He he want he want, he was trying to give him spec privacy, right? And Hen I finds, get it. Hen, Hen finds Eddie. Uh, so, but yeah, it's. <sighs> but honestly, I don't think there was any stopping that 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 avalanche was coming whether whether he was alone or not. Yeah, I guess. Ugh. I'm really irritated. Cause I came over here to the subscriptions. Cause I was gonna sh tell you guys what the uh, what the um, amnesia fic is that I'm actually reading. It has three. It's three or four parts. It's, it's almost complete. So I go over to subscriptions, and it's written and it's in alpha order instead of like by date. And I forgot that it does this, and I hates it. <laughs> Why can't I sort it by the time, by the date that I chose to subscribe? Because AO3 actually is just, for all that it's very advanced in some ways, it's got some really terrible filtering features. Oh, history. Good, good thought. Good thought. Good thought. Actually, I find looking at my history is like one of, I mean, if it's very recent, that's great. But sometimes looking at my history is just, that's an exercise in frustration. It's like, why did I think this was a good idea? Whoa, oh, God. Why did I read that? Okay. Never mind. Never mind. Sometimes looking at your history is also a good, good opportunity to clean it out. It's like, I don't want that in there. Did anybody have any questions about, I don't, no, I don't see any questions about Trump. Anyway, it's, it was an interesting thing that came up about, um, can you tell if something's transformative or have, are you able to tell if something's transformative? And I was like, that's an interesting, that is an interesting question. Um, I've never felt like I struggled. No, it wouldn't be that. No, it would not be that one. Please delete that. Thanks. Um. That particular fic has some tags in it that made me rage quit. Oh, it's called I Think I Belong to You, parentheses, I Hope You, I hope you Feel the Same, in parentheses, by Ran for Trinipedia. And we are three or four parts. So Eddie's kind of feeling his way around things and he finds his will and can't figure out why he's not in a relationship with Buck. This is the one that I, I mix them up. The, there, there were several ones I read because I don't know why I, I click on Amnesia Fix. I just do. It's what I do. Okay. Who hurt you? Didn't the '80s <laughs> break you of this? Harlequin hurt me. Harlequin hurt me a lot. Actually, I, that's one of the reasons why I don't like Amnesia Fix. So it's probably one of those things like time travel of where I need to, you know, push myself outside of my comfort zone and kind of get over it because the '80s did hurt me. '80s and '90s really hurt me on the Amnesia Fix front. It's why I don't like it. Anyways, it's um it's a cute fic. Um, Eddie's kind of floundering around, Buck's being Buck, and he's like, I I don't, <sighs> fibro man. I 
what I do know is that when I get ready to, when that fourth part publishes, I'm going to have to read the whole thing over again. This is <laughs> why. I've forgotten the whole thing. This is why it is dangerous to read works in progress. Right? Also, I'm also reading a Hannibal work in progress, but we can't talk about Hannibal without a forewarning. <sighs> a lot of forewarning. Um, there is a whole, um, my brain just blew screen. <laughs> Oh, there's a whole thing about, um, it's one of the, it's one of the interesting things. And I, I, the funny thing is I've actually done this. Um, I've, I've done it when I, um, when I was posting emergence, actually, I've used this exact, pretty much this exact same phrasing, which is I start posting it and I say, this whole story is written, but I am posting it as I edit or somebody will tell you the schedule they're going to post. This whole thing is written, but I am, I'm going to post it once a week or I'm going to be posting um, on Tuesdays and Fridays or whatever the fuck it is. I'm going to po I post all in the weekends. So that's what I'm, people put some, this whole thing is written, but blah, whatever their reason is for not posting it all at once. Um, and usually in my case, whenever I, whenever I don't post anything that's not all at once, it's either because I have to do it in the way I'm doing it because of a challenge, which I don't participate in those kinds of challenges anymore usually. Or it's because of some editing thing, like literally that I, which for emergence, it wasn't editing thing. It's like, I've got, you know, it's 212K or however long it is. It's like, okay, I'm going to get this up. It wasn't even just a editing thing. It was also a going through and formatting thing. Um, I don't, I don't really do that anymore, but the whole editing thing, if it's not all edited, I'm not going to start posting it. But now I'm starting to think, I see a lot of this now. I'm seeing more and more and more people posting longer works where they preface it with that. This whole thing is written, but I'm not posting it because of this reason. I'm either editing it or I'm going to post it on the schedule or whatever. I swear to God, it is happening so much. And some of these stories, you never hear from them again. That I, I don't started, believe them. I started to think it's just a bait and switch tactic. It's like, it's to get people who they know. Because honestly, what... And I asked myself this about, I asked my past self this, why did you do that? Why did you give that preface? Um, and I think... Because fandom told you to. Because fandom told me to. It was also to stave off the questions about, will you be finishing this? Will you abandon it? Just to kind of stave all that off. But it didn't stave any of that off. Um, and so now I think it's just mostly a to get readers who only read complete works to start a work in progress. I feel, I feel that may not be fair, but I feel like that's 90% of it. These works are not actually finished. I'm jaded. I am jaded. I am jaded. And this is what I think. This is, I believe it. Because the thing is, there's just too many of these stories where the author goes, where it starts off as part chapter one of four. And by the time it's finished, it's chapters one of eight. Or it's chapter 8 of 8. And they're like, oh, I feel like I need one more chapter. Oh, It's like, wasn't this bitch finished? But you were going to be posting it <laughs> twice a week? Wasn't it finished? How did you not know that it was going to be twice as long if it was finished? Fucking liar. <laughs> but she's not bitter. I'm not bitter. I just feel like I've been lured. I feel like I've been, I've been lured in is bamboozled. what I feel like. You've been bamboozled. I, was, I have been bamboozled. And it's just not right. It's too late. She done been invincent. Most of you didn't get that. That's okay though. Mm -hmm. um, I do think sometimes that the um, posting of one chapter at a time is about hit count, but I don't know. I think that mentality is bizarre. I don't really get it. Uh, but um, it is true that you will get more hits, and probably if the story is good, you will probably even get more comments if you post it one chapter at a time. I think there's some truth in that. Um, 
So I do think it's not about hit but counts. But to invest just, yourself in that kind of validation is just wow. Sad. Get a therapist. Was that rude? Probably. That's probably do, rude. Do yeah. you care? I'm gonna get emails about it. In 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 that vein. I did just make a Ray Stevens reference. Thank you, Gnome, for getting it. Um, in that vein, if I did offend you just now and you felt like you want to send me an email, don't bother because I'm just gonna delete it. She don't care if she offended you. I'll be I'll be honest. She don't care. And if it's especially entertaining for me, I might read it out to the podcast. Then delete it. But you won't actually get a response from me. Ron Weasley Defense League. But the thing is, is that when it comes to this whole... I do believe there probably are some authors, a few, who have written 150k work. And they are putting up 5k as they edit it. I think that probably is possible, and even probable. Is that the vast majority of these authors who are claiming these works are entirely written? Not a chance in fucking hell. Um, because they write, they, they put out one chapter, and then we never see them again. Or maybe, maybe we get two chapters. Or they do eventually give you the whole... Now. They do eventually give you the whole work. But is it what they said? No. No, nope. it isn't. Is it the four chapters they said it was going to be? No, no. Well, I realized as I was editing part chapter three that I was going to need a fifth chapter. I realized I was editing chapter five that I was going to need a sixth chapter. Uh-huh. If this whole thing was written ahead of time and all you had to do is edit, you would know that it was going to be twice as long. You liar! <laughs> and I'm not quoting. If this hadn't happened at least a dozen times, I wouldn't even say anything because I would be pointing at a specific fic. But I'm not. Because it happens a lot. <laughs> yeah, but it's a lot, a lot. For fuck's sake. Stop telling me lies. Well, the problem, Dark, is with the other thing that's happening a lot lately. <laughs> allow me to not. counter. Allow me to counter your naivete. A lot of people lately, the other trend that's happening, is people are saying that their stories are complete when they're not. One of one, two of two, and then there's another chapter, three of three, four of four, five of five. I'm like, how can it be complete every time you post a new chapter? And it's because they're saying, oh, and I literally saw somebody say in, a, in, in their comment section about this, well, that's all I had at the time, so it was one of one, two of two, three of three. Oh, fuck you. Honestly. <laughs> Honestly. The giant unlubed dildo. <sighs> Which is kinder than the cactus that Lady Holder usually busts out for this particular threat. We're precariously close to a fire extinguisher. I've, I've, I feel it coming. Hope you don't feel Not it literally. coming. Not <laughs> literally. I'm like, I don't feel it coming. Um, but I, if, I if I find a story interesting, right? If I find it, if I find it, if I find a concept interesting, I will follow it. And then when I get that notification that it's finished i'll go and read it and then i'll we'll be like why did i want to follow this <laughs> no i'm just kidding uh but sometimes you go in and you nope out just like if you had read it but i am i am less likely to uh read a story that's a work in progress based upon it being even interesting it, it is it happens occasionally but it is un, un, unusual just because i will not remember and i find work in progress writers are not even if they say they're gonna update twice a week they i don't expect I don't, I don't feel like it's right for me to put my expectations on them. And my memory is about needing twice a week updates to remember what the fuck is going on. And the last thing I need, have time for, is to go back and have to reread from the beginning every time there's a new update. So I just, 
I just really pretty much don't do that to myself anymore. So it really is frustrating when something is marked complete and it isn't complete. And the author knows it wasn't complete when they marked it that way. They're a big lying liar who lied. That's right. I will say their posting method is transformative and somebody needs to report them for it. <laughs> do you ever get the idea that Jilly was a hall monitor? <laughs> Wait, were you? Don't know, but don't give me terms of service. I was actually the classroom monitor. <laughs> of course you were. I was the person the teacher left in charge when she had to leave the leave the class. Um, you know, because I was reliable. But anyway, <laughs> you don't want to leave me in charge. Uh, but no, don't tell me. Don't tell me there's a rule, uh, and then think I'm just gonna like you know pretend I don't know it's a rule. That's just not on. It's like that's a rule. <laughs> <laughs> You gotta follow the rules. That's what makes I, us civilized. I like rules. They are. They are very orderly. Rules are very orderly. They're useful. This is also the same person that admitted if she had a superpower, she'd probably be a villain. That's true. <laughs> she make her own rules. <laughs> hey, if I had like a, a a league of villains, you know, of my very own, we would have rules if we would be orderly. There would be a code of conduct. Those would be some of the best behaved villains. We would have terms of service and all that jazz. I'd probably have health insurance and everything. I don't see any point in making sharks more superpowered than they already are. <laughs> Laughter is good for your soul. It is good for your but soul. But on the other side of it, if you specifically ask for laser sharks with laser beams on their heads and you don't get them, you have every right to be upset about that. True. I'm just saying. But if I was a supervillain, I wouldn't ask for sharks with laser beams because I just... You know, no, I wouldn't need that. Sharks already have a superpower. Do they need another superpower? No. I told my husband later earlier today that he was really lucky I couldn't force choke people. <laughs> That's probably profoundly true. He needs to watch himself. <laughs> Anyways, um, just don't wrap around the axle about the definition of what transformative is as you're working. Just see it as a personal goal. That you want to tell a story that no one else is telling. That you want to take your characters and your readers on a journey that leaves them changed at the end. You want to, to entertain and move and, and grow as a writer. And as a reader, when you make considered choices about what you read, you enrich your experience in fandom. And so that, that's just all I gotta say about that. <laughs> And I do think, it's funny, because sometimes I can read something where the writing is not great. They wouldn't be on my generally competent list. But if it's really transformative, I can really overlook it, you know? Yeah. Um, but I was reading something um, recently where I would say that it was, the, the actually the author's word craft, their writing craft, was really good. And it probably is what kept me going longer than I would normally go with something. Um because the quality of the writing was good, but it was so derivative. It was so, it was so, and the thing is, she was throwing giant boulders into the pond, and yet nothing was changing. Was it in Teen Wolf? Because that's canon. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm, just, I'm messing with you. <laughs> I know. Teen Wolf definitely has more timeline issues than they do um, reform management issues. <laughs> 
Well, you could argue the same thing with a uh, 911. Yeah. Oh, the timeline. Oh, the time. Although the funny thing is, when I see most of the issue with 911's timeline is it's compressed in a way that is that that even people who can suspend their disbelief around procedural nonsense struggle with. Um, as opposed to being hugely inconsistent, like Eddie recovering from that sniper injury in two months, not just mm-hmm. recovering from it, but requalifying and going back to work. Which means not only did he recover, he did rehab in two months and rebuilt the muscle he lost um, and requalified all in two months. From having a, a through and through of the shoulder. Um, what? What now? No. That doesn't work that way. I mean, I. The shoulder is so fiddly. I cannot begin to imagine. I mean, it is, it is such a mobile joint. It just doesn't make any sense. So, but that's the like issue. The knee. Huh? The knee is just as bad, right? No, I mean, no, is... no. The knee, the really? knee moves, the, the knee, the, the only, the only joint that has rotation like that is the shoulder. Um, when you think about the, the way it rotates, the knee goes forward and backward. That's it. It does not go side to side. It doesn't go rotate a circle. The, the, the reason why shoulder and shoulder problems are so prevalent um, in any kind of sports or anything like that is because of the rotator cuff, as it's called, the ligaments and muscles that support the rotation of the shoulder. It is the most mobile joint in the body. I mean, the knee, knee. The problem with knees is weight bearing. Mm. The weight. I can attest to that. It's the weight, not the mobility, really. Um, actually, the feet joints are more mobile than the knee. But weight. I wonder if muscle healing. Is better or worse than bone healing? I think. Well, bone is pretty static. I mean, it has a pretty fixed timeline on the on its healing. It's pretty predictable. Mm-hmm. But when it comes, yeah, when it comes to how quickly a bone can heal and stuff, um, which is why you can get like small fractures in a bone and not even actually even really know, um, and they'll still heal yeah. in a predictable amount of time. But if you don't damage the wrapping around that nerve-rich layer on the bone, which I think is called periosteum or something like that Mm -hmm. i'm trying to remember my anatomy classes um if you don't damage that you might not even feel a fracture um because there's there's that's where all the nerves are right um right unless you're yeah depending upon what you what how bad the fracture is but you can have stress that's why you can have stress fractures you don't really feel until you start getting uh like edema um but as long as there's not inflammation and stuff that's caught, and the inflammation starts to become the source of the pain, you could actually have relatively pain-free fractures. But when it comes to ligament and tendon damage, um, and one of the problems with ligaments and tem- tendons is there's not blood flow to them. Not mm. really. They're not blood-rich. Okay. They're, they're nerve-rich, but they're not blood-rich. So they don't heal as well as... Um, I have noticed that recovering from the surgery hasn't been as easy as I thought it would be. Lots of muscle cramps and shit. Yeah, soft tissue injuries. Soft tissue injuries are very unpredictable in how they're going to heal. So, worst case scenario is traumatic bone injury and traumatic muscle and soft tissue injury at the same time, because like a crush injury. Yeah, and also what Eddie's through and through on the shoulder. I mean, and we know it was a through and through because there was blood spray. Yeah. So. um, So interestingly enough, I was reading um, about gunshot wounds and how often they don't keep you in the hospital even a full day if you get shot. Unless you're shot catastrophically and you've got a mortal wound. But if it's like a flesh wound, they'll have your ass in and out of the hospital in under 24 hours. But also, they don't actually take bullets out unless it's a problem. Like if it's going to be a problem, like it might migrate 
into your heart or something, they might remove it, but they might just hope it, it, it it's not a problem because getting the bullet out might do more damage to you than leaving it in. It might, but it might also depend on your, like your profession. Um, like there might be some instances where it's better, uh, someone, per, the kind of work somebody does, they have to have that bullet removed. Um, like depending upon the composition of the bullet, I would think if you like were an MRI tech, they might really need to get that bullet out. Maybe. Or maybe their job as an MRI tech is over if they can't get it out. Well, but it depends. I mean, I would imagine if it's if it's a low, it can't is a kind of a weird idea. There's a bullet in me. I mean, I know that happens that there are bullets they can't remove. Um, but yeah, that would be, that would just be strange. And also sometimes, a lot of times bullets don't end up in one piece in the body either. But the thing, the, the thing that kept Eddie in the hospital probably, even if the bullet had been in, which I think they would have taken it out, um, would have been probably the hypovolemic shock um, and the amount of yeah, other damage you done. Yeah, a lot of blood. Yeah. Because that, at least in that case, they have to monitor you for at least a little while, depending upon how bad the blood loss was, to make sure your kidneys and your heart do okay. Mm -hmm. I've read stories where somebody was in hypovolemic shock, and... Um, they gave them a couple, two or three pints, and sent them home. That's not how that works, y'all. Um, um, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I think, honestly, with any kind of shock situation, they aren't going to send you home until you're, like, 100% stable. Uh, because you can die from shock. I, it I guess it depends upon um, what is causing your problem what kind of shock is like anaphylactic mm -hmm. shock um they may just observe you for four or five hours and then send you home but the observation Unless you're a crazy person that has like secondary reactions right but that's why they're observing you is to make sure you don't have a biphasic reaction and if you do then they're going to keep your and if you're known for biphasic reactions they're going to keep your ass so um <laughs> she's not salty about that either <laughs> But like one I of the things, cousin who had a bi, how do you say it, biphasic, biphasic. Um, uh, twelve hours after the initial incident. That's that's a long that's a long delay because I've I usually. I mean, they were actually worried that she'd been re-exposed, but they looked through everything and she hadn't been. But she went into anaphylactic shock twice, twelve hours apart, because she ate um a fruit salad, and it had almonds in it. And she's allergic to almonds. Yeah, it may depend upon how they how it got in your system. Um, also, because I know when I had the anaphylactic reaction last year to my allergy shot, um, they only mm -hmm. observed me for about four hours uh, before they let me go home. Um, well, yeah, your 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 body wasn't digesting anything. Exactly so that that, that food yeah. wasn't in my stomach, potentially triggering the reaction again. At least I hope it wasn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like. Get out of my stomach. Um. <laughs> she just, oh my God. I don't know how it got here. I don't know how it got here, but I just got an image of Austin Powers in my brain. Get in my belly. <laughs> I, I don't think Austin Powers needs to be living rent free in your head. I, I agree. Especially not Fat Bastard. What does, was that his name? Fat Bastard? God. God. <laughs> I never even watched the whole of that movie. Why is that in my brain? I've never watched any complete Austin Powers movie. <laughs> Star. 
I actually heard that sentence you just said. I heard it in my head. <laughs> We're ruining you. <laughs> and it's okay. It's okay. It's okay to be ruined. <laughs> oh, hail. Oh, hail. <laughs> mm. But, um, just, like we said, just, just don't get wrapped around the axle about it. Because we're seriously not talking about anybody specifically. In fact, this came up because we were talking about just transformative works. And, um, it, you, know, you know, I've been struggling with finding an idea for April. And I settled on one. And honestly, I've been rethinking it all day. I mean, not the, uh, the characters. I'm going to use the characters. But I'm wondering about the Sentinel element and if I should go with a different kind of fusion. Because my Divergers are already a fusion of the Hobbit. But you know, I was, I'm just wondering, what if I just lean all the way into that? So, anyways. You can expect to see Rizelle and Tyr in April. But they may or may not be Sentinel and God by the time I get there. Because I'm zero drafting right now. And I'm just kind of playing with concepts. And this and is what... Element. I think this is what you do with when you are... When you've been in a fandom for a long time. Um, and you are still wanting to explore and play with it, or maybe you just are taking a break from, even if it's your favorite character, is sometimes you just, now it depends, I think it depends upon why you really like um, a particular fandom, because what I love about NCIS was always Tony Dinozo. it was never the NCIS setup, the procedural setup, uh, so I can't imagine that if I wasn't writing Tony that I would have any cause whatsoever to touch that world. Um, but sometimes it's just like the world that's really fascinating, right? It's like you just want to, um, like some worlds have so much potential in their mythology and the, and the world building that they have that you just want to keep exploring it. And yeah, opening up and expanding it and looking at it and finding different stories to tell within it. Um, I'm always looking for the untold story. I think that's why like the Star Trek world and the Star Wars world, even though Star Wars world has some real problems in it, but the Star Trek world and the Star Wars world, um, even the Teen Wolf world, some of these worlds are just really fascinating. And sometimes we have other fandoms where we find the characters really fascinating. And that can make some really interesting blends um, where we take the characters we find really fascinating and we put them in the worlds we find really fascinating. And that doesn't always work, but, you know experimentation, experiment, experiment, experiment. I mean, I don't know that I'm going to be able to put the Hobbit, I mean, put Buck down in the Lord of the Rings, but, you know, he'd make a good elf. An infuriating elf. He'd drive Elrond crazy, but, you know. Right? You already know he would. Yeah, uh, yeah, I I, I, I 100% see it. I also see him enabling Glorfindel, um, how you say his name, Glorfindel? Uh-huh. Glorfindel? Glorfindel? Enabling him and the twins. Oh, yeah. Completely. Elrond would send him to live in Mirkwood. I am so tired of your shit. <laughs> and people would be like, wow, Elrond just completely lost his composure. <laughs> <It> just... <laughs> I mean, I can't say that the idea would actually work, but it doesn't mean that I wouldn't entertain the idea. And I would read it. <laughs> I'm not sure I could write it, but if someone put the cast of 911 in the, in the Hobbit, I'd read the fuck out of it. Now, I do think Christopher would be a Hobbit, which means Eddie's a Hobbit. <laughs> so. 
Well, Eddie could be a Juaro and Shannon could have been a Hobbit. Yeah, so, so Christopher, Christopher could be a Dwabbit. Yes, yes, Christopher's a Dwabbit. <laughs> That's even better. That's the best. Which puts then Eddie and and Buck totally at that whole having that whole uh, Legolas uh, Gimli vibe kind of going on that was so. I'd make the whole cast Juaro, actually. Yeah, probably. Drop him down in a um, in a mountain. Except for Christopher, who's a Dwabbit. Uh, I would. To- oh my God! I would totally do that whole. Um, in the Blue Mountains. Do you remember in Eddie Izzard's, Eddie Izzard's uh, Dress to Kill routine when he talks about Clay, Britain claimed um, built its empire through the cunning use of flags. I claim India for Britain. And I said, you can't claim us. We live here. Um, there's 500 million of us. You can't claim us. Uh, what if there's already a whole bunch of Dwaro living in the Blue Mountains and, you know, the Longbeards come along and go, we claim the Blue Mountains for, for Erebor. They're like, you can't claim us. We already live here. <laughs> I guess you can stay in the guest room. <laughs> do you have a flag? <laughs> we do have a flag, as a matter of fact. <sighs> Christopher made it. <laughs> it's the official flag of the Blue Mountains. You are to praise it profusely when you see it. <laughs> it's an odd-looking flag. <sighs> you are in so much trouble. You can't stay, but your children can. Bye. We don't like you. I consider we consider ourselves very likable. Compared to what? <laughs> A dragon. Okay, fair point. Too soon. It's too soon. It's a little too soon. <laughs> okay. Obviously, obviously the 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 podcast should end right now because I'm getting giggly and, and silly. Um well, when I start coming up with crack concepts, it's definitely time <laughs> to move on. No need to record all of this for posterity. Um but thank you guys for hanging out with us and uh talking about this concept and just, you know, be be kind to yourself. Um and um don't Click on Deathpick on AO3. <laughs> unless you just want, hey, unless you want a good cry, you know. Unless if you, you just want an ugly cry like a child. Which, if you do, you, it's okay. We don't judge you. We don't judge your need to ugly cry. Sometimes you just need a good cry. But again, if I need an ugly cry, I will just go watch Steel Magnolias like a normal person. <laughs> <sighs> I did have to retreat to the Hannibal fandom after I read that fic. <laughs> That's just sad. I had to retreat to the Hannibal fandom to to recover to um, recover my emotional equilibrium. Yeah, I know. It is what it is. Anyways, you guys have a fantastic night and a great weekend. And um, we or may good, or may not podcast later. We or good morning to some of you who are just now getting up. We super appreciate you. Um, say good night, Julie. Good night, everyone.